I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. What do you like listening to? Um. <laughs> don't Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> You pop crazy youngsters, and welcome to the latest edition of Chart Music, the podcast that examines the droppings left behind by the hit parade. I'm your host, Al Needham, and as always, I'm joined by two people who are cow heavy and bursting with musical knowledge. First up, and back on the term sofa for the first time in ages, it's David Stubbs. Hello, David. How do you do? And also in attendance is my man Simon Price. A up, Simon. Glad to have you back, sir. All right. I'm glad to be back as always. Good, good, good. Right. No fanning about this episode. You know the drill by now. We take one episode of Top of the Pops from back in the day and break it down to its very last compound. This week, we're going all the way back to April the 11th, 1974. Now then, there's a bit of reasoning behind this because in previous episodes, we've gone back to 1973 and we liked Mm. it, didn't we? Yeah, it was, the world was still young. Yeah. Then we went back to 1975. Um, to be honest, we thought it stank of unwashed cock, didn't we? Yeah, the world had got old. Bag of shade. <laughs> so this episode is a look at the bit in the middle to see if the rot is already setting in in Popland. 1974, where were we, chaps? Well, I was at school. Um, I was just finishing junior school. Um, I was um, captain of the football team, top of the class, you know. Um, Wish I could be like David Stubbs. That's exactly it. I was just about to break into that very song. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. yeah I you were so gay and fancy free, weren't you, David? I absolutely was. Yeah, yeah, I, I really was. I just wish, you know, I could have sort of continued, you know, with that kind of level of prestige and sort of universal adoration, you know, smartest boy in the village, etc., etc. Um, but yeah, but you know, still top of the pops, highlight of the week as ever. Um, and uh, I think, you know, I was building a sort of rudimentary sense of sort of discernment. Um, but that really was based about pace, really. I thought slow songs were rubbish, fast songs were great. Excellent. That's a good good marker when you're that age, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've you got no time to be slow, have you? It's, it's all about velocity, youth and velocity. And uh, yeah. But, but being weighed down by soggy flares. Yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, soggy flares. Yeah, we'll get onto them in a bit. Simon, me and you were around about the same age. I was five when this episode came out. How old were you? Five, six? Uh, I was six, yeah. Um, and uh, I think about a year previous to this, my parents got divorced. So, um, yeah, it's get the uh, <laughs> the sad music from the X Factor out now while I'm telling you this bit. Um, so uh, me, me and my mum at this point were living in a uh, tiny uh, one-bedroom flat um, in Barry, South Wales, uh, not far from a Druid circle where about 10 years later uh, I would uh, sacrifice a packet of beef crisps on a stone because <laughs> I, I didn't want to hurt any actual animals. Mm. Um, 
And uh, yeah, it was it was a, it was a tiny flat. My mum slept on a sofa. I had this little box bedroom, uh, um, on the wall of which I had a poster of racing cars that said Grand Prix. But because I was a child and didn't understand French, I thought it said Grand Prix. Oh, <laughs> like that that girl off Granger who was on the Saturday TV show that was on It'll Be All Right on right. every time they repeated it. But my main fun at this time, I, I wasn't um, switched on to pop music yet, uh, as as David was. Um, I was, I guess, getting into football, but mainly uh, I was into uh, riding my bicycle, uh, which is a purple uh, rally budgie. Good skills. Um, down the lanes, um, down down the lanes uh, in the streets behind um, my street, where me and my mates would build ramps out of uh, brick and uh, planks uh, in the manner of Evil Knievel, who was pretty much at the top of his game at that time. Of course. Um, and you know, because health and safety did not exist as a as a concept, you could just, you know, you could ride down these lanes that were full of broken glass and dog shit and build ramps, and it was no one really cared. Just kids were left to their own devices, and I, I kind of miss that really. Um, it's a, a swallows and Amazons childhood without the swallows or the Amazons really. There was there was no Amazon, um, and there there was no swallowing. <laughs> Simon, we've got to rewind a little bit. How do you sacrifice a packet of beef crisps? Well. Obviously, you lay it on the flat stone in the Druid's circle and you stab it with a Swiss army knife. I mean, how, how would you do it? <laughs> while, while chanting words of Welsh that you've so, somehow picked up. I do love the idea of Chris being involved in rebellion because I've got a, a mate who um, grew up in a Muslim family and when he was about 14 or 15, him and his mates, uh, their idea of being rebellious was standing on street corners openly eating packets of smoky bacon crisps. <laughs> well, this is what you've got to understand that, you know, most meat flavoured crisps don't have any meat in them. So, no, as no. a conscientious vegetarian, as I was by my teens because of Morrissey and the Smiths and all of that. Um, yeah. The exception being, of course, pork scratchings. Pork scratchings, yeah, sure. And Bovril. <laughs> pork Bovril scratchings. crisps you couldn't eat. I think it was a friend of our movie friend of Chris Kai once found um, a, pack, a packet of pork scratchings. One of them had a pig's nipple on them. So, um, Oh, lovely. Yeah. So I think you're pretty conscious that that's not kind of chemical yeah. facsimile there, definitely. But you know, I can't, I can't help it. It's in the blood. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Celtic, I'm a Celtic man. You know, I've got that kind of Merlin-like mysticism swirling through my veins, and I was just compelled to take, take a packet of Golden Wonder, and you know, vent all my kind of unearthly, uh, mystical passions upon it on that stone, and and leave it just a, a pile of crumbs. Yeah, no, it's it's admirable, I have to say, because to be honest, in 1974, crisps were everything. And I just lived for Chris. I was going, my first yeah. holiday that year was in Trialda Bay in, in North Wales in this kind of hideous Frankensteinous pile there with like, um, um, just a single TV room. Um, absolutely. But I saved up that more my pocket money every week. My main calculation was how many packets of Chris I'd be able to afford every day in between games of football. <laughs> it was, that was it, you know, it was yeah, Chris or everything. So I think your sacrifice is truly to be admired. And everything is crisp. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> that's it. That's how that song, yeah, that song would have truly spoken to my heart. Yes. Yeah, so uh, By this time, uh, I was discovering both football and pop music. Uh, my team at the time was uh, QPR. Uh, for two reasons. Number one, Stan Bowles. I really liked him. I really wanted yes. him to be my uncle. Uh, but the main reason was that their shirt was the same as my favourite mug. And that's how you decide upon a team when you're uh, when none of your family's interested in football and you're that age. I went through a QPR phase as well. Yeah. Um, it was really hard to get a QPR replica shirt 
So my mum got me one that was about five sizes too big and it had really long sleeves. So when I wore it, I looked like basically Johnny Rotten. Mm. I think I went through Leeds United, um, QPR, Southampton before settling on Liverpool because that's what kids are like. They just flit back and forth, particularly if you don't come from a town that has its own team. So you're not being taken to the game every week, you know, so basically football to you is match of the day. So you, your, your, your affections are quite fickle, I think, at that time. Yeah, I was much more promiscuous. I settled eventually on being an Arsenal fan, but at that point, I, I would have like happily supported Sunderland because they beat Leeds. My main thing was I hated Leeds. I was brought up in Leeds and I felt <laughs> that I really belonged in the South. I'd been born in London, been brought up to this kind of, you know, the ghastly county of Yorkshire. And it was pretty grim at the time, has to be said, um, in all kinds of ways. I mean, you just look at the footage now and it's just absolutely. You know, there's a yes. sort of toxicity about it that David Peace eventually kind of mined. Um, but, um, but yeah, yeah. Seven four Leeds, of course, were just about to win the championship, actually. Although around about April, they did falter. That gave them a bit of hope. They, they lost a couple of games, but they were just about to uh, endure a procession to the uh, to the Division One title at that point. So that was a little cloud in my uh, life at that point. <laughs> you know, about ten minutes ago, when I said we're not going to piss about this yep, episode, we're well, into- we're yes, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, that's that's how that's how we roll. Yeah, I, I mean, music-wise, I was I was well into it. Uh, it was a, it was you know, it, it was a thing in my life, um, mainly because um, at my school I was at infant school at the time, and every Thursday afternoon, every Thursday dinner time, we'd have uh, we'd have a school disco every week, and you'd pay half a p to get in, and uh, I was I was in a gang, um, I was the only white kid in the gang, and we called ourselves the Rudy Guys. <laughs> And we'd stand and we'd dance to every song doing the Rudy Guy dance, which was a bit of a stylistics, one foot to foot kind of shuffle, looking really cool. Uh, I, but I was the only one who didn't have an afro, unfortunately. But you know, never mind. I kind of, kind of worked my way around it. And then at the end, they'd play Blockbuster and um, uh, Leader of the Gang. And then you just couldn't be a Rudy Guy anymore. You just had to run round and skid on the floor and fucking these year flares up and everything. Yeah. So yeah, Top of the Pops was a really big deal. April 1974, I was 11 going on 12. I don't think I probably met a single black person in my life. There's, there were no Rudy boys in Barrick and Elmer, I can tell you. There weren't any Barry either, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thursday nights, I, I was aware of Top of the Pops and my dad refused point blank to watch it, as I've, as I've mentioned before. So once again, for this episode, if I did watch it, I'd have to go round to Tony Bones' mum's house to, to watch it, which was which was great. So I'd be probably be sitting there with a packet of crisps, taking in the spangly popness that was about to, uh, which we're about to talk about. Radio One News. So, what was in the news this week? Wow. The House Judiciary Committee has voted to force President Nixon to turn over tapes in the Watergate investigation. Golden Meyer has just resigned as Prime Minister of Israel. The USSR have insisted that Rudolf Hess serves out his life term at Spandau Prison. Over in America, Hank Aaron has just broken Babe Ruth's home run record. And three Atletico Madrid players have been sent off the night before in a European Cup quarterfinal against Celtic. And there was a proper good punch-up at the end. Oh, I've seen that on YouTube, yeah. Yeah, it's well worth checking out. It was basically the Argentina team, wasn't it? In the, in the different guys. Surely you mean it brings the game into disrepute and it's the sort of thing yeah. that none of us <laughs> yeah. want to see. I think the word yeah. that came to mind was cynical. Indeed, yes. <laughs> <laughs> On the cover of the NME this week is Joni Mitchell because she was in London playing three nights. 
Uh, on the cover of the TV Times, because there's no smash hits, obviously. On the cover of the TV Times is Noel Gordon and Des O'Connor. Oh, what a combination. Why didn't they record some tunes? <laughs> it was for the TV Times Award, which two of them used to win year upon year. The number one LP is the yeah. singles 1969 to 1973 by The Carpenters. Over in America, the number one single is Hooked on a Feeling by Blue Swede. And the number one LP is Band on the Run by Wings. Ah, that's about the first and second album I ever bought, actually. Really? Yeah. The first one was Manfred Mann's Greatest Hits because it was on sale at the mysteriously low price of 65 pence in Tesco's. Wow. And then I got Band on the Run. Yeah, it's natural. I just played it to death. I remember a year later, someone brought it to school on the last day of term before we broke up for Christmas because you could play your records and that. And we didn't even bother taking the record out of the sleeve. We just spent all afternoon looking at the cover at the the famous people on it, thinking, what are they doing there? (laughs) So what else was on telly this day? Well, BBC One has already shown the Double Deckers, International Show Jumping from Hickstead, Jack and Ore, Blue Peter, Nationwide and Tomorrow's World. You know, just your standard BBC fare for a Thursday. BBC Two, on the other hand, started with Play School at 11 o'clock and then it switched off until 20 to 7. At the moment, they're screening a debate programme called Argument and asking the question, does humanism have anything to offer? (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) ITV, on the other hand has already broadcast Indoor League, The Flintstones and 45, the ITV pop programme hosted by Kid Jensen. And the guest stars this week have been Alvin Stardust, Slade and Hurricane Smith. They're one hour into the film Fantastic Voyage with Raquel Welsh, which means I've definitely got to fuck off to Tony Bones' house if I want to watch this episode of Top of the Pops. (laughs) Indoor League, David, you must remember that very well being a... A, a faux Yorkshireman. Oh, absolutely, yes, yes. The, um, uh, yeah, the, um, they used to have, I can't remember who did the commentary, it might have been Keith Macklin or something like that, but they'd have a very sort of like, very kind of flowery kind of approach to it. You know, they'd talk about, you know, the bar of the bar billiards table and stuff like that. And uh, yes. there were various, uh, yeah, shove and all these kinds of things. Yes. It's, um, and, and, and they used to have a Yorkshire dartboard as well, which <laughs> seemed impossibly exotic at the time. Yes, yes, yes. But, um, I mean, what was indoor league? Just explain to, uh, to the younger viewers. Maybe I'm not thinking of the same thing. I'm just thinking of like basically what were glorified pub games that were just yes, that's exactly what it was. um, Yeah, presented by Fred Truman. Yeah, yes, that's right. Yeah, and um, yeah, they were given the kind of spurious stages of sport. Well, I suppose you know if snooker is going to be kind of considered a sport, it's you know it's a short hop really to shove eight near whatever. And um, yeah, (laughs) yeah, I mean this was um, it was something to do. It was something to watch, and it was something to put on the telly, wasn't it, in the afternoon? Yeah. When there yeah. wasn't any crown court. All of this is a mystery to me, right? Because uh, I I grew up in a BBC household. And that's really how it was in the 70s. That, you know, quite quite a lot of families, um, particularly if they had pretensions to middle class status, um, didn't like having ITV <laughs> on in the house. And um, my mum, my mum, bless her, um, even though we had no money, we were completely skint. My mum was a bit of a hyacinth bouquet. <laughs> and... Um, you know, she she loved uh, turning up to uh, or dragging me to church on a Sunday morning with my hair neatly combed and parted and my shoes polished, <laughs> so that we could look respectable in front of the people from the nice end of town oh. and all of that. And I think um, not having ITV on in the house was was part of that really. So things like like Magpie mm. um, uh, or, or Tiswas, mm. 
I rarely saw all these things which I never saw on the oh, buses. Man, or, no wonder he turned to crisp sacrifice. Well, absolutely, you know. Yeah. I mean, Golden Wonder had it coming. Imagine all the pent-up rage <laughs> in me, you know, not not being able to, to partake mm, in the kind mm. of trashy, brightly coloured pleasures. But Jeez. all these... Th- lift off with Aishi, or however you say it. Never saw that. Um, Aishi, yeah. Yeah, never saw that. Uh, never never saw Magpie. Never saw, Well, maybe once or twice saw Magpie. Used to sneak a look at Tizwas if my mum was out, but she didn't approve. Oh. So, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like little Lord Fauntleroy. Yeah. But this, this, is, this is a bizarre thing. I absolutely crave Top of the Pops. You know, I, um, I was absolutely desperate to watch every single week, but I also had the option to watch Lift Off with Aishi and all these other programs, but I chose not to. They didn't quite seem valid somehow. I think it was perhaps it was kind of tied up. There was unofficial. It it, it was, it, you know, it, 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 I think that, you know, probably for me, it was kind of quite anal. It was all bound up with the kind of official charts or whatever. And what these acts did outside of that context of Top of the Pops and the charts didn't really, it just felt kind of frivolously relevant. You know, what was important was to see them in the context of the charts, of the hit parade, set in relation to kind of all the kind of slow, ballady, MOR stuff or whatever. But yeah, I was curiously incurious about um, pop on ITV. I never watched 45 by, you know, Kid Jensen, didn't even know it exists. And it wasn't anything to do with being forbidden to do it because we watched all kinds of ITV stuff. On the other hand, I came from an ITV family my dad ruled the, uh, well, I was going to say remote control, but the, the, there was no such thing back in 74. The clicker on but the yeah, side, channel two to channel 10. I mean, BBC would be on every now and again for certain things, but BBC two, no. And channel four, God, no. You know, I had to watch that on the sly because my dad certainly didn't approve of, of what was occurring on that channel. Um, <laughs> but, you know, FA Cup final, World Cup, major news event, what are you going to watch, BBC or ITV? You always go to Absolutely. BBC, don't you? Yeah, yeah. people who watch the FA Cup final on ITV, I thought there was something really wrong with them. Exactly, yeah. You'd just switch it on all day, wouldn't you, for the BBC, from Football Focus. Even before that, actually, probably, you know, Multicolour Swap Shop would have some kind of element of FA Cup build-up, and you just leave it on till tea time, really. All right then, pop craze youngsters, no more messing about. It's time to go in hard on April the 11th, 1974. Don't forget the golden rule... We may coat off your favourite band or artist, but we never forget they've been on top of the pops more than we have. We are hit in the face with a montage of music paraphernalia, gig posters, LP covers, etc. And the faces of people such as Michael Jackson, Elvis, David Bowie, Elton John, Billy Paul, Roger Daltrey and Lindsay DePaul, while the BBC Orchestra does their version of Whole Lot of Love. And the montage we see is kind of meant to, it's meant to evoke pop in all its variety, isn't it? You know, like, you know, this, you know, from Elvis Presley to Roger Daltrey, it's all there. Look at all these people who aren't going to be on this episode. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Here's what you could have won. Yes. (laughs) They seem to have gone on a bit of a magpie kick, ironically enough. I mean, with all the kind of the... um, yeah, the, the, the sort of slightly kind of um, psychedelic lettering, what have you. It, it, it's, it seems to yes. be almost like kind of they've taken the leaf out of the credits, you know, the book of the, the magpie kind of credits game. It's, it's um, um, yeah, it's, it's quite bizarre. I don't really remember them going through this particular phase. I remember it being more of a kind of just a sober countdown, but all that business at the beginning. 
Yeah, and it's yeah, a bit um, it's a bit yellow submarine, and it's a bit Monty yeah. Python, um, yeah. and you know, particularly t- uh, towards the end, you know, the last few numbers are, mm. are very kind of psychedelic. But there, there are other bits where they've just got the same picture of a pop star's face um, at two angles, one yeah. two like that, like sort of mm. Elvis's face from you know tilted left, tilted right, yeah. and that's going yeah. to blow our minds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah. there's something about there's something about the saxophone in this this version of Whole Lot of Love. Which uh, makes me think of some kind of really urbane sleazeball chat show host, you know, like Parkinson, or you know, maybe some sort of pebble mill at one kind of guy. This, it's, it, it, it just feels like sort of velvet flared suits, and mm. um, I don't know. Mm. Yeah, it, it's, there's something a bit unsavoury about it. I think. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's almost a metaphor, really. You know, you've got the original kind of rock sort of whatever, the actual whole lot of love riff, and then this rather crass departure by somebody who really doesn't have a clue about the spirit of rock and pop music. But I love it, though. I'm, I much prefer this version, A Whole Lot of Love, by the BBC Orchestra than the Led Zeppelin version. As soon as Robert Plant starts fucking screaming and everything, it's like, oh, shut up, mate. I want to hear that sax. The, the brass really turns me on. <laughs> In the 90s, um, a colleague of David's and, and mine at Melody Maker, a guy called Tony Hawkins, who uh, used to run the kind of uh, uh, technical and muso uh, bit of Melody Maker, he actually had a hit record with um, with a third version of Whole Lot of Love. Do you remember that, David? God, yes. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. God, what was the name of his band? With the Pearl and Dean music. Yes, that was it. That was it. It brought in the Pearl and Dean. Goldberg with a British band um, in the 90s he says reading from Wikipedia formed in Brighton 1995 by a former member of the Beatmasters so there we go but yeah um, the drummer on that was our Melody Maker colleague Tony Hawkins got to number three unbelievably Yeah, and it says that they were recruited via an advert in Melody Maker so Tony probably just cut out the middleman and thought fuck that I'm going to join you know I'm not even going to publish that advert (laughs) that's a pretty good perk though working Mm. in Melody Maker isn't it you know you can just poach all all the good band jobs yeah. Should have thought about that, Chief. Good evening, music lovers, wherever you are. Uh, I've got a feeling this is Top of the Pops. Is that right, Limmy? So the camera crashes in on Noel Edmonds in a grey jacket with 70s regulation massive lapels, <laughs> a white shirt with what we used to refer to at school as condor collars due to their massive wingspan, and the shirt's open to below the nipples and a, with a small gold medallion. He's basically rocking the Saturday Night Fever look three years before the event. With a luxuriant bouffant teamed with the trademark sensible goatee and he introduces the top 30 with a shit gag that dies on its ass because the record is queued late noel edmonds let's let's talk about him born in ilford in 1948 noel edmonds was the son of a headmaster who was offered a place at the university of surrey but he turned it down to be a newsreader at radio luxembourg After a year of that, he moved to Radio 1 in 1969 to record trailers and fill in for absent DJs. Then he bagged a regular Saturday afternoon slot in 1970, moved to a Sunday morning slot in 1971, and then was then immediately promoted up to the breakfast show in 1973, deposing Tony Blackburn. He's been a regular Top of the Pops presenter since 1970, and he's seen as very much the golden boy of Radio 1. He's one year from presenting his first TV show, Zed Shed, a visual problem page for teenagers, presumably in a shed. Do you remember Zed Shed, David? Faintly. 
Faintly, yeah. I don't think I watched it. Um, just faintly now that you say Z shit, yeah. I don't know if I want Noel Edmonds answering my relationship problems. <laughs> he's a funny old stick, Noel Edmonds. Um, he's always seemed to, he's one of these people that's always seemed a certain age. He's always seemed about 40 years old. You know, he seems about 40 years old here, even though he's probably in his late 20s. He seems 40 years old. He's 26. Today. Yeah, yeah, he's 26. He seems about 40, though. Um, as you say, the gags just lay absolute eggs, every last one of them. And it's... Um, <laughs> Um, and he's extraordinary. He's got a real kind of coin, coin hunt thing going on. He's got that kind of smirk. He does, he does later <laughs> on, you know, there's, there's a sort of, there's, there's one he talks about here, here, kitty, kitty, when, you know, when there's a cat yes. in some of the songs and then it, then he repeats it afterwards. And it's just like, it's not even a joke. Yeah. It's just a kind of, it's just a sort of slightly snotty snort. And he's doing that kind of like, slightly laughing nervously at his own, at his own material. Um, and they, oh, how, how does a cat go up the motorway? Meow. I mean, it's just, it's just wretched. Oh, man, so, you ki- you're killing his material, David. It's absolutely um, <laughs> bizarre because my dad, we used to love him. Me and my dad, we used to call him God. We thought he was fantastic. And I'm just finding hard to really? why? kind of... Exactly. Why indeed? You know, I'm just trying to find what it was about him and his presence that just inspired this kind of... And has inspired it ever since. You know, what... It, Did you think it looked a bit like Jesus? Um, yes, I think that element of the Christ-like, definitely. Um, about his appearance, a bit Robert Powellish, whatever. But now I, 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 I don't know. I just, I, I, I can't sort of fasten on anything at all about <laughs> him that would have like and has indeed inspired this kind of you know long career. But you just said there, David, your dad liked him as well. Yeah, did I hear that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One thing we agreed on was the marvelousness of Noel Edmonds. <laughs> Why? That's not the role of a dad. The role of a dad is to just cast aspersions on everyone presenting Top of the Pops. I don't know. Well, this is it. But then to precise, that's probably because Noel Edmonds wasn't really... He was a bit like, like Dave Lee Travis. He got the impression that... I mean, he says at the beginning, hello, music lovers. And it says, like, you're not... You know, you're obviously far comfier talking to Dave Lee Travis about the respective merits of cross-ply and radial tyres. I mean, they clearly yes. weren't music people. They just had a sort of vague sort of sheen of like modernity about them that made them plausible to present sort of programs but they clearly have no sort of love or sort of feeling or knowledge for the music i mean even you, you know you, you mm. just that does creep out you know that's like lazy djs like your kid jensen's people are like you get the feeling they have it and janice long but you know they'll they'll say something now and again that betrays a bit of love for the music but nothing at all no edmonds it's just a sort of stream of hits as far as he's concerned it's just you know it's just a stream of audio data it's it's um um, it's like, you know, Jimmy Savile, you know, he's the, the one and only, the police, the one and only Dire Straits. So the only thing he seemed to know about music was that each band was the one and only one of them. <laughs> and it's just, and it, it's extraordinary, like, you know, how, how they got away with it the entire 70s. And, and also, you know, they, making these light introductions that were, that were just numb jokes. They were just things said in a kind of spirit of levity, or failing that, as Noel Edmonds resorts to quite a lot, just going into a little funny voice like that, or perhaps a northern accent. Oh, by Jimmy. Yeah. It's just like, Christ, I, you know. Uh, uh, David, do you want to do you want to tell the audience how um, Noel Edmonds introduced the only performance on top of the pops of Can? Of course, yes. He hoped that they would have a good chance of getting into the top tin. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> uh, Noel Edmonds appears to be one of the first Radio 1 DJs who's got his eye on the glittery TV presenting prize. I mean, he's already seen Jimmy Savile do that in a, in a way. Mm. You know, Jimmy Savile's got clunk click on at the minute. So he's one of the pioneers to, to carve the path between getting off the radio and getting on telly, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. 
And it was always kind of, you know, it's kind of annoying to me. And I think even then you sense there's certain people that genuinely like pop music and there are people that just see it as a kind of starting point to a kind of broader mm. broadcasting career. And, yeah, you always get that. Simon. Yeah, um, I agree with what David said, that clearly Noel Edmonds doesn't like or even understand pop music. And I think it's quite telling in your little potted bio there that... Uh, he um, went into radio as a newsreader first and then sort of moved sideways or maybe even downwards, as he might have seen it, into the world of presenting pop. Um, but the thing is, he did seem kind of weirdly godlike and weirdly untouchable in the 70s and early 80s, I suppose. Um, he did seem like, if not the face of the BBC, certainly the face of the young or the youth-oriented B- the BBC. And... Um, this, of course, is, is years and years, decades before him getting pranked by Chris Morris about the made-up drug cake or um, him him going into mm. his, his partridge-like rant about housing provisions for soldiers returning from the Iraq war uh, on, on his Sky chat show. Um, and again, decades before him uh, threatening to buy the BBC... Uh, and, yeah. and, uh, and, and then touting this special gadget that can cure cancer. I mean, obviously now he's, he's gone nuts. He's yeah. lost them, but he's completely gone insane. He is completely, absolutely mm. fucking insane yeah. now. He's going full Ike at the moment, isn't he? But at the time, in, uh, I think in 1974, Noel Edmonds was the most trendy person I could imagine. And I'm going to define trendy here. I think trendy in the 70s was very different from cool. Trendy meant that you were, you were in yeah. tune with what was popular. You were not fighting against the tide. You were not trying to drag it forwards. You were just in tune with what's popular and you were the most in tune with what's popular of anyone. And um, I think my, my first memory of him, uh, this probably would have been a couple of years later, actually. There was a, a clothing company called Trutex 14 uh, for, for children and young people. And uh, they gave out flexi discs with their clothes. And I must have had a pair of Trutex 14 jeans and there was this flexi with it, which had Noel Edmonds' face on the label. And when he played it, it had him uh, introducing snatches of his favourite songs. So it was things like uh, Don't Go Breaking uh, My Heart and uh, If Not You and things like that. And and then occasionally snatches mm. of this sort of True Text 14 kind of jingle. And uh, it was oh God, just that must be on YouTube. It is. It is. Go find it. I tell you, it's, I, 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 I oh, listened to it earlier. That'll be on the video playlist. Yeah, totally. Um, and he just seemed to embody this kind of uh, pre-punk um, era of pop where it's, it seemed that this is what was fashionable and this would always be that way. Nothing would ever change. Um, his kind mm. of feathery bouffant hair and his sensible little beard and his condor collars, as you call them, that would always be the way, the truth and the life. And uh, yeah, he, he just seemed kind of <laughs> it, invulnerable, like some kind of... Uh, Youthful battleship. I don't know. Yeah, but he was strongly disliked, though, wasn't he, by um, Tony Blackburn and Dave Lee Travis? Oh well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> reading Tony Blackburn's uh, autobiographies is just a goldmine of anti-Edmonds material. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, Tony Blackburn, Dave Lee Travis, and Alan Partridge. All of them despise Noel Edmonds. <laughs> oh yes, of course. Yes, Alan Partridge indeed. One of them it's a coincidence. Three of them it's a pattern, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> my memories of Noel Edmonds. I think my favourite memory has to be the uh, the advert he did for uh, British Gas, where he's hosting a disco that's full of ovens. Do you remember that one? No. <laughs> 
Oh, there's a fucking advert. Jesus there's a Christ. series of adverts at Noel Edmonds at a disco and everyone's getting down. Hmm. But on the side, there's like a bank of, of gas ovens and, and people are stopping dancing and going over and, you know, turning a spit. and People are stopping and, dancing and sticking their heads in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I just think it's the most dangerous thing ever. Can you imagine having fucking ovens on the go at a disco? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Disco Inferno. Possibly one of the things about him, because he has been successful, clearly. And, you know, how can you just run for so many years, so many decades on empty the way he's done? And, I mean, first of all, I think he's never changed that haircut. It's a bit like Glenn Hoddle. He's maintained, he's sort of like weighed anchor. No, do you remember that thing? Um, Vic and Bob. Vic and Bob took the piss out of that, didn't they? They they had... uh, one of them, I think it was uh, Bob Mortimer, comes on in this weird kind of lion-like bodysuit <laughs> and this weird kind of Noel Edmonds head mask, yeah. and he feigns uh, horror at seeing a photo. Of, oh no, a picture of me looking slightly different, <laughs> you know, from twelve years ago or something. Because yeah, yeah. yeah, he absolutely hasn't changed at all. Yeah, yeah, no, but people do like that. People like an absolute constant, you know. People like John Motson, people like that. People do like a kind of cultural, pop cultural constant, so maybe that's it. That and just this unflappable self-confidence, you know, despite the fact that he has absolutely, mm. he doesn't have an atom of mm. wit about it. No, and he's obviously a total arse, but I'll say this for him, he is he is a slick presenter. When you watch this episode, mm. his jokes don't land, they're, they're fucking awful. But he mm. is very confident and very yeah. glib, and he doesn't fuck up. He's a safe pair of hands. Yeah. Actually, he does fuck up once at the very end, which we'll come to. But, you know, basically, he is absolutely Mr. Smooth, Mr. Safe pair mm. of hands. And you can see why he was such a kind of regular face yeah. on TOT. I mean, is it safe? No, the, the, the odd death on his shows. Um, but, uh, yeah. Let's move on to a walking miracle. Formed in Canton, Ohio in the late 60s, Lime, Jimmy and Martha Snell signed with Avco Records in the early 70s. Although they did nothing in the US charts, they had a number three hit in the summer of 1973 with You Can Do Magic. This song is the follow-up to Dreamboat, which got to number 31 in November of 1973. It's a cover of a 1963 songs by The Essex, and it's gone up this week from number 38 to number 23. And this is being played over the chart rundown, and there's, you know, there's stills of the bands counting down, interspersed with uh, clips of the audience. Is there anything in that in that sequence that grabbed you, chaps? Yeah, just the fact that we do see the audience... Um, and I, I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but this was 1974 and I've been binging on Northern Soul lately. I've been really overdosing on it for a thing that I'm going to write for The Guardian. Mm. And um, I just wondered if this was some kind of weird tacit acknowledgement of Northern Soul culture in that um, you're seeing the audience, the audience of the stars, the, you know, this this idea that, you know, rather than focusing on the stage and, you know, uh, the face of a pop star, um, the important thing is the people dancing, um, and we even there's a northern there's a yeah. northern soul track in the uh, rundown actually. Uh, Love on a Mountaintop by Robert Knight, brilliant tune. Um, yes, it has there to be is. said some of the audience cannot dance. Um, there's somebody who sort of rocks from side to side in this really awkward manner that reminds me of um, Janine Davitsky as Ange in Abigail's Party. If you can picture that, do you remember oh, that? Yes. That that <laughs> yes. the way the way she da- yes. that specific way she dances, mm. the entire body tilting first left and then right <laughs> with no no kind of syncopation to it. She had mm. beautiful lips she, though. Very beautiful lips. Yeah, um <laughs> I I just wonder if um that that would that was maybe northern soul culture um spreading as far as TOTP because a lot of uh, the um sort of wig and casino hits were starting to make their way into the top 40. 
This song though is a bit crap. Yeah, this I mean, song is a bit th- crap. I love. Um, you can do magic. It's just an incredible record, and um, to this yes. day, if I'm DJing and doing a soul set, that is one that I'll always reach for. It's just so uplifting. But this, this kind of cheesy, corny mm. kind of cover of an old '60s uh, girl group number, um, it reminds me a little bit of. Uh, when Sister Sledge, having made some of the greatest music known to mankind, um, later come back with Frankie um, for their biggest hit record. It's, do you know yes. what I mean? It's just very... It's mm. it's offensively jaunty and a bit cheesy. And I'll always love Limmy and Family Cooking for You Can Do Magic, but this one can piss off, quite frankly. I have to say, I mean, it's interesting what you were saying, Simon, about the um, audience. And I think, yeah, there's definitely loads there. I think I was focusing more on perhaps the sort of slightly on some of the sort of the bad dancing, whatever, but also just the general demeanour of the people there. You can tell this is sort of pre-Thatcher, mid-70s, whatever. I mean, you look at Top of the Pops in the early 80s and everybody's a kind of exhibitionist in Dealey Boppers. And there's none of that. There's a kind of scorn for that. I think this is what we were like back then. You know, we, we weren't exhibitionists. You know, we were modest. We were bound yeah. by this social contract, you know, one nation, you know, we didn't want to be famous for 15 minutes, you know, other people were famous, you know, Danny LaRue, Larry Grace, Noel Edmonds, whatever, you know, and we just very quietly, <laughs> we looked at the camera with a certain kind of shy sort of disdain or whatever, and we got on with our dancing, and that was that. It was a yeah. very different Britain then. And the, and, and the hair is very lank amongst the lads, isn't it? Yes, yeah, I mean, there's, um, um, yeah, it's almost like the whole nation hasn't had a hair wash since 1969, yeah. Whereas Noel, on the other hand, has, has had at least two cans of Cossack on his hair, hasn't he? <laughs> Maybe that was the difference between them and us. Yeah, the stars <laughs> had access to conditioner and the rest of us didn't. Cossack, though. Maybe you've got it there. Maybe he bought up the entire supply of Cossack at a certain point. He's been hoarding it ever since, and it's a sort of career preservative. Because, yes, you never hear a Cossack these days. Perhaps Noel bought it all up rather than buying the BBC. It is that brand of hairspray that you only find in a newsagent's when you're desperate. And I know this as an old goth myself. When you're desperate for a can of hairspray and all the chemists are closed, um, you go in a newsagent's and all they got is Cossack or Harmony. I actually wonder, maybe Noel was a Harmony yeah. man. Is he or isn't he? <laughs> Uh. So the following week, a walking miracle jumped up to number 15 and two weeks later it reached number six, its highest position. This would be their last bit of chart action, however, and they toured the UK as two separate cabaret bands until the mid-80s. I don't know if it was Limmy went off on his own and family cooking went off another way or... Oh, so many permutations and I don't care. I'm talking about my baby and I love it. sound of uh, Limmy and family cooking, of course, and the mobile miracle. I hope our chart was very much to your liking. Jimmy Osmond, of course, rising ten places. Sunny with her doctor's orders, up nine places. We've got four new entries in the chart, the highest of which comes from Mud, and the cat is on the move. Here, kitty, 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 kitty. Edmonds discusses a few chart placings before introducing Mud. Formed in Colshalton in 1966, Mud started off as a psychedelic band with a string of flop singles including Flower Power, 
up the airy mountain, Shangri-La and jumping Jehoshaphat until they were dropped by CBS in 1970. After three years without a deal, they signed with Rack Records, straddled both the glam rock and the Ted Revival bandwagons, appeared on the Basil Brush show and had three hits in 1973. This is the follow-up to their first number one single, Tiger Feet, in January of this year, which kept Teenage Rampage by the Sweet and Devil Gate by Susie Quattro off the top spot. Sorry about that, David. I know it still hurts you. And it's the highest new entry this week at number eight. Follow-up to a number one. I think what you just said about them straddling glam rock and the tribe rock revival is actually kind of, yeah, that's significant, really, because it's a funny old time, 1973-74. It's almost for the first time rock and pop are sort of taking a breather and looking back right back to the beginnings of rock and roll. There was a huge sort of rock and roll revival, and we'll see a little bit of that later on as well. Um, and that's what they're managing to do. I mean, they've got ultra glam. You've got, I mean, you've got like Rob Davis on guitar, who for me was my sort of first inkling of anything to do with like transgender or anything like that. You know, um, the way that he dressed, you know, that, that was fantastic. Um, um, and he was appointed to the future, the 80s to come, where men would turn into women and all that. But at the same time, you've got Les Gray and the rest of the chap, you know, doing the whole sort of teddy boy thing, whatever. So they kind of really are. They're sort of like tapping into two sort of significant strains at the moment. You know, the sort of tail end of glam rock and all that kind of futurism, but also that sort of mood of revivalism that you got, you know, you got Shiwadi Wadi and people like that elsewhere at the same time, as well as, you know, it's happening in films, happening everywhere. People are really thinking about early rock and roll at this mm. time. But surely the, the Ted Revivalists would hate a band like Mud. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the actual purists probably would. Yeah, they would disdain them. Obviously, they're a sort of pop dilute version. But, but yeah, there was something, I mean, maybe Mud had their own kind of sort of hybrid thing. I mean, you know, that's fantastic. I mean, I was a Mud boy at the time, and that meant going out to the disco, you know, two thumbs in two sort of belt loops or whatever, sort of indulging that stag ritual or whatever. Two blokes, it was just like, off the mud rocker. So the band begin by standing behind each other with their arms out like a glam Ted Shiva. And they're led by Rob Davis, the designated effeminate member of the band. Now, one thing that's always bothered me about this, do you think glam bands, I mean, obviously they had to have someone like that in their band. Yeah, Steve Priest in Sweden. Yeah. Do, do you think they actually drew lots to decide who it was going to be or would one of them <laughs> volunteer to do it? That's a very good point, actually, mm. because they both do it with gusto. You don't get any impression that, like, they're doing it under sort of protest or yeah. sufferance, do you? Yeah. But then the other thing was, you know, you actually talk, you know, Steve Priest, you know, when you see him interviewed, I mean, there's, there, there isn't a sort of trace of effeminacy about him at all. And, um, and uh, you know, Rob Davis, neither as far as I can make out. Yeah, so it was purely a kind of put-on, but... Uh, no, they, they were just, you know, very happy to um, do their bit. <laughs> They're all wearing uh, powder blue with uh, a glittery piping motif, but Les Gray gets the Elvis jumpsuit and Rob Davis looks like Margot Ledbetter with sort of dangly mm. coin earrings. I mean, and I thought at the beginning, I, th- I thought he was yeah. wearing a dress, but he was just wearing really massive flares. I tell you, he reminds me of uh, Rob Davis with his massive dangly earrings. It's, uh, do you remember when Pamela Stevenson on Not the Nine O'Clock News used to do an impression of uh, the newsreader, Jan Leeming? Yes. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot of that about it, actually. Um, I've got to correct you. Um, it's not Shiva, it's Vishnu. Vishnu. They start off in the Vishnu Shit. formation. It's Vishnu. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they stood yeah. there, three of them with their arms out. It's, uh, it's a formation that would later uh, would later be uh, reprised by Dead or Alive in their video for You Spin Me Round. Um, but they just they hold that pose for just a couple of seconds and then they break, don't they? And they're huddled tight. It's very kind of shoulder to shoulder, that kind of dance they do. And it's like a gang. It's a sort of come and have a go if you think you're hard enough 
pose yes. that they're doing, which which seems to atone in some way for any kind of possible effeminacy embodied by by Rob Davis and his earrings. And 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 and, and you're right that um, they are. Um, as well as being kind of the last knockings of glam or glam bandwagon jumpers, they are kind of Teddy Boy cabaret act in a way because one of their biggest hits was Oh Boy, a cover version of the uh, Buddy Holly song, mm-hmm. and and then there's uh, there's Lonely This Christmas, which is a an of Elvis course. pastiche really. <clears throat> so that's clearly where their their heart was, um, and uh, the, you can tell they've been around a while. Their hairlines have been hit by the recession. Yes. Um, it's it's inconceivable to look at them that anyone fancied mud. I don't think anybody had no. posters of mud on their walls and you know fantasized about any member of the band. Um, They'd be a tough selling Mirabelle and music star, wouldn't they? They would. Um, I'm. Th- this is not exactly a genre, but a category of record that fascinates me, and that is follow-ups that are exactly the same as the song that came before it. Right. Um, and yeah. in, in an attempt to you know. Um, you know, to to make uh, magic strike twice. So, for example, uh, Kung Fu Fighting, Carl Douglas, the, the follow-up to that was Dance the Kung Fu. And it sounds exactly <laughs> yes. the same, but just slightly crapper. I love that song. And it, you know, didn't really make it. Um, there's one that books the trend is actually uh, Chubby Checker, Let's Twist Again, which is, if anything, better than The Twist. Um, but normally, you, you know, normally these kind of follow-up records that are exactly the same as as the predecessor kind of fall on their ass and flop this one didn't really it got it got to number two in the end it nearly repeated the success of tiger feet so you've got this kind of feline themed um very urgent glam rock record and if i think if if you hadn't heard tiger feet first you would actually think this was a truly fantastic record it's 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 diminished only by not being tiger feet because tiger feet is actually perfect um and you know this really is uh, Chin and Chapman at the top of their game, I think. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about is the visual language of Top of the Pops that we see really crystallised in this performance. Because if you look to the corners of the screen, you see the coloured spotlights doing that thing they do in the camera of forming this kind of radial spangle around around the edge of the screen. And it and it's it's such a beautiful, evocative thing. And I don't know if it was deliberate or just some kind of weird side effect of the slightly insufficient technology of the time but that the way the coloured lights go into that kind of spangle effect in the corner of the screen during this mud performance that to me is early 70s top mm. of i think that one of the things you always get on top of was always struck me even as a kid is that it was a kind of a metaphor for what it was like this place in the culture it was this moment of light in a, in a time of like pop cultural darkness and he was always aware on the periphery of the screen hype in the studio rafters of the this blackness kind of surrounding, you know, surrounding the performance, you know, because it was only partially lit, you know, the, the stage was all lit, but you're always aware that way up in the rafters, it was very, very dark. So things like this, I guess, is like little devices to kind of try and offset that. Do we notice, by the way, when uh, Rob Davis holds the guitar behind his head and gives it a bit of Jimi Hendrix? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, that, 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 I guess. That was... Extraordinary moment. Yeah. And um, the camera um, zooms right in so that we see one of his we see his hand with a plectrum, um, but we don't see what his fingertips are doing. I think there's possibly a reason for that. <laughs> yeah, it's very possibly. 
Love, lovely thing though about a group like Mud is this general point. It, it is, it was granddad annoying. I mean, my dad wasn't the first, but my granddad, he would sit there and fulminate over Todd Pops every week. And it was always the same thing. Seven days jankers they'd get. Seven days jankers, whether it was Roy Wood or Mud. It was just absolutely infuriating. You know, it was a bit sort of short back and sides, you know, by, by temperament. And, uh, you know, it was always very satisfying to know <laughs> that the, um, you know, the generation gap was being duly observed. My dad's standard retort to uh, anything like this was, they're not fucking real. (laughs) And that's the point, Dad. The trouble is then Oasis came along. I know, Oasis came along and were fucking real. And again, you know, we we always go on about Alvin Stardust, you must be out of your tiny minds. Les Gray was there for the kids as well, remember? He was. He did a Green Cross Code advert. He did. Mud were coming out of the recording studio and just about to get into their limo, uh, but Les sees some kids running uh, running across the road, so he, uh, he he gives them a stern lecture. In 1976, by the way, that was. So they're coming out of the recording studio, having made a record mm. nobody's going to buy. Yes, yeah. But at least, at least he saved a few lives. Yeah. The following week, the cat crept in to number two, then uh, went down to number three, and then back up to number two, but no higher. The follow-up, Rocket, got to number six in August, and Lonely This Christmas would be the festive number one of 1974. They'd have eight more chart hits, including a number one with a cover of Oh Boy in 1975, before splitting up in 1976. They had a short but very decent run, didn't they? Yeah, and um, I actually saw them live um, at Butlins in about 1985 so they clearly patched up their differences and actually maybe at that point it was probably Les Gray's mud wasn't it Les Gray and a bunch of ringers because Rob Davis by this point was mm. uh, probably thinking about his songwriting career and he, he did very well didn't he <laughs> In the uh, here kitty kitty department, the cat crept in, and that, of course, is a new entry from Mud. How's a cat go up the M1? Meow! Quite right. And at this week's number four, we find Slade. If you're not really satisfied with seeing them here, may I remind you they're starting a tour of the UK almost immediately, and they're starting in Bradford, would you believe? Slade, and every day. one more shitty cat joke in before warning the parents of Bradford to lock up their daughters as he introduces Slade. We've covered Slade in the last episode of Chart Music as they embarked on their early 80s go-around, so let's be brief here. This is a follow-up to Merry Christmas, Everybody, which was still in the top 40 by February, and the second single from their current LP, Old, New, Borrowed and Blue. Seen as a risky departure for the band from their usual glam stomp, the song was selected as the next released after an argument between manager Chas Chandler and the band during a tour flight to Australia. And fucking hell, that must have been a very long argument. It was last week's highest new entry at number six, and it's jumped up two places this week to number four. Now, here's another song that's a, a follow-up from a number one. Yeah, first of all... Um, Pressure's on. First of all, that, that whole thing about Merry Christmas, everybody still being in the top 40... 
in February. That always, that ne- never ceases to baffle me. Who the fuck is still buying Christmas records in February? What, you know, what on earth is that about? Who gets out of bed on a Saturday morning in February and thinks, do you know what I'm going to buy? I'm going to go and buy Merry Christmas, Christmas Everybody <laughs> by Slade. Um, so yeah, so we, we, we got, we got, um, Edmonds, um, having done his joke, how does a cat go up the M1? Meow. Then he says, he said Slade's Ugh. tour is starting in Bradford, and then he goes, "Would you believe?" with this sort of smug little wobble of a head. I mean, what does he what does he mean by that? He thinks he's really suave. He says it in this kind of like pseudo suave way, like, hmm, you know, "Would you believe?" Um, it, oh man. Anyway, but you know, it he, he gets away with it. Yeah, he does. He sort of does a little head wobble, and he gets yeah. away with it because he's got got these sort of fawning these sort of fawning people around him and. But but then immediately, what cracks me up about the song itself mm. is that this is Slade's sensitive ballad. They they come from the kind of raucousness of Merry Christmas Everybody to, to this beautiful sensitive ballad, and immediately it's messed up by Super Yob, dressed as an Egyptian pharaoh, waving this kind of big blue drape around from the neck of his guitar, which is actually kind <laughs> yes. of brilliant in a, in a wrong way. Yes. Um, and I, I think this is a genuinely great song. Mm-hmm. Um, we all, we all think of Noddy Holder as this sort of genial black country clown, but I do think he's got one of the great rock and roll voices, never mind just in Britain, you know, maybe, you know, the, the world. Um, and I think he really shows it on this record. I, I don't think you can argue with this being a brilliant mm-hmm. song. Um, I think it's, you know, I, I suppose that, really kind mm-hmm. of clunkingly um head smackingly awful uh comparison would be oh well it's like uh, the oasis of its day but this pisses all over something like wonderwall for me it really does um oh by the way did you notice <laughs> something, something yes. happens in this performance that i love um there's a bloke in the audience uh and he's wearing a tuxedo and a bow tie uh, and 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 it, he walks yes. away yes. he yes. walks away uh, as if in disgust yes. near the end of the song and I don't know if he's yes. disgusted by no, this kind of trashy on. pop music in general or whether he just thinks, oh man, Slade has sold out. Well, you see, this, this would have been me. This would have been me when I was 12, you see. Remember, fast, good, slow, bad. And I would have probably felt a little bit disappointed by this. Also, if it only gets up to number four, you know, I would probably felt as well as being aware of the charts. I think, well, they really are slowing down. You know, normally, it was straight at number one if it was Slade. Um, so I would probably be disappointed. I mean, you know, I think it is a really good song. I agree with Simon, actually. Um, but it's, you know, it's, of course, it's not just Johnny Holder. It's, it's Jimmy Lee who there gets. And I think it's possible that Jimmy Lee is trying to kind of assert the kind of more kind of wistful, pensive side of Slade. You get with Look at Last Night and things like that with this one. And he gets to play the piano on this one. He says, Look, it's not just the fella in the hat and crash helmet hair there it's you know it's me jimmy lee as well and i can do sensitivity so it might be that it's kind of a certain a bit of his kind of jimmy leaness within the whole scheme of things um and you know and i don't know it's it's not he, he sings it beautifully though there's a slight sort of you know if i've been told that he was singing it under some sort of protest i wouldn't be surprised given the sort of way he kind of stares out slightly doughy really you know as he's doing it i think he's probably happier doing in terms of like expressiveness, doing the kind of you know the big songs, and yet vocally, yeah, he deals with it really well. Noddy's wearing his standard uh, Rupert Bear suit, and a standard feature of uh, Slade performances on top of the pops, as as anyone who knows Slade's know, would be the unveiling of Dave Hill's new costume. He used to keep it a secret what he was going to wear on top of the pops until they were in the dressing room and he came out. And in this one, he's got ornate blue and white material around his wrists. And uh, in my notes here, I've got like an Aztec bother boy. 
I just one thing I want to chuck in about Dave Hill here. Uh, my five-year-old niece um, got hold of a pair of scissors the other day and decided to cut her fringe off. And uh, she now looks like a blonde Dave Hill. Oh. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> well, that hairdo actually became weirdly fashionable with hipster women about ten years ago. Yes. I mean, it was a sort of robotic-type thing, wasn't it? It was a Ladytronish thing, yeah. I guess. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, you do feel sorry for Jimmy Lee. You just wonder if you, you know, he was a co-songwriter. You wonder if he really did feel kind of overshadowed by Johnny, you know, sort of Noddy Holder and, uh, and Dave Hill there. But, uh... but the kids don't really know how to react to it, unfortunately. There's a bit of awkward swaying about. I mean, they would have put the lighters up, but, you know, there was a fuel shortage in the in the mid-70s, so they weren't, wouldn't have been allowed to. I can imagine my 11-year-old self there saying, come on, Noddy, get down and get with us. <laughs> Yeah, you're thinking, come on, Oddie, we're all crazy now. Why aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) So the following week, Every Day nudged up to number three, its highest position, and the band spent the rest of the year working on their film Flame. The follow-up, Banging Man, got to number three in July, and the follow-up to that, Far, Far Away, got to number three in October. But four top 20 hits later, their career petered out until the early 80s. Anything we want to say about Flame? Excellent film. I saw it at the time. It is, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those films which kind of transcends the probably all, all the intentions that, that uh, went into it. Uh, it was probably made without any high expectations by the people who financed it, but, you know, by, by the producers, you know, possibly the mm. director may have had some kind of artistic intent, but I doubt it. And yet, just almost by accident, it's an incredible document of a certain place and time. And... Uh, and just a certain atmosphere of just black country Britain, I think, in in, in the seventies. That which which I think you know a, a straight documentary could probably never have captured. It's it's an incredible. It is film. really good. I mean, at the time, it um, yeah. For me, I wasn't really a cineast at the age of eleven, but for me, the important thing was that um, I think I kind of caught that sort of air of authenticity you're referring to. For me, it confirmed Slade's hardness because fast as, as well as speed, hardness was important as well in in, in a group and. Um, Definitely call that. Noddy Holder's quite a decent actor. I mean, he was in The Grimleys and all that. My mate actually worked with him on that, and they'd spend all the dinner times in Noddy's trailer talking about soul music of the 60s. He was uh, yeah. he was quite the fan and quite the expert. Quite pleasing, that, isn't it? When, uh, when mm. someone who you don't immediately associate with a certain genre of music turns out to be crazy about it and, you know, really knowledgeable. I love that. Slade, 247 Music Makers in the finest tradition, and a big thank you to the gentlemen for all the work they've been doing for Radio 1 recently. Their latest single, Sound 4, and every day, Mr. Dorset wrote it, and he's right there at the front. He's going to tell us all about a lady who's got, ooh, lovely long legs. She's dressed in black as well. Take it away, Mungo. A ginger girl jumps up on the podium next to Edmonds as he thanks Slade for all their recent work on Radio 1 and coquettishly plays with her hair as Edmonds pointedly ignores her and introduces Mungo Jerry in an offensive northern accent. Gratuitously. Well, actually, I would probably sympathise because I was a bit anti-northern myself at the time, being a sort of, you know, would-be southern snob. Um, yeah, it probably only confirm. <laughs> Self-hating Yorkshireman. It, well, I wasn't a Yorkshireman, you see. I was born in Edgware in London, you see. Oh, this is the thing. And I was out of my natural all right, waters. All right, all right. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> Formed in 1969 in Middlesex, Mungo Jerry, named after a cat in the T.S. Eliot book, came out of nowhere to get to number one in 1970, staying there for seven weeks. Although they're seen now as a one-hit wonder, their second single, Baby Jump, also made number one in February of 1971, and they have two more top five hits, one of which, Lady Rose, was withdrawn from sale when it was at number five as the B-side contained suggestive lyrics about cocaine. This is the follow-up to Wild Love, which got to number 32 in November of 1973, and it's up from number 42 to number 36. I, I, we're, you know, we're seeing a band who's had a bit of a run, and it's faltering. What's strange about Mungo Jerry is that it never really occurred to me anything that he, that he was black in any way. I was always aware of his kind of big sideburns or whatever. It didn't really pinch on me. I mean, look at him now. He actually looks like a potential god. He looks like a hybrid of Jimi Hendrix and Elvis Presley or something like that. And then how comes this sort of bizarrely inappropriate sort of piece of um, pub pop rock, I suppose? I don't know how to sort of describe it, really. Um, well, Ray Dorsett stands above the rest of the band. There's obviously only one star in this band. Uh, and he's wearing a white flared studded outfit, cut off at the sleeves, looking in this performance like the bastard son of Lenny Kravitz and Fred West. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and his guitar strap, nice touch here, festooned with horse brasses. You wouldn't like to be caught across the face by that, would you? (laughs) Simon, Mungo Jerry, what do you reckon on this? Um, It's desperate. It's awful. It's it's glam by numbers. And I think, in a way, it's symbolic of the fact that glam as a genre was running out of steam. Um, Long-legged woman dressed in black. It's almost, you could sort of assemble it from cutting up the titles of other previously existing songs couldn't you and would you call Mungo Jerry a glam band no well n- not as such but they they were that kind of rough arsed end of glam really that kind of you know uh, sort of scarf waving sort of lad, lad glam um, yes do you know the song All Right All Right All Right that was a hit by them which was actually a cover version of Aimoi 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 by Jacques Dutronc um, which was that that was a pretty stomping glam record um, yeah uh, I I noticed in this one that, that uh, okay yeah um, Ray Dorset is up on a podium, but they put the drummer at the front. Wait, he's at the top of some steps, yeah. isn't he? Really? Yeah, yeah. But the drummer's at the front, and uh, that's something. The only uh, other example that leaps to mind of that is uh, the Jam doing "Beat Surrender," um, sticking Rick Buckler at the front in their last ever Top of the Pops performance. Um, and I just want to talk about the drums on this. I I do one thing I do like about this record sonically, even though it's a just a piss awful song is that it's all about the snare <laughs> there's not a lot of bass drum on these records it's all like and that's the same as mud mud was all about the snare as well when you look at the setup drum wise that mud had it's not dissimilar to the stray cats you know some kind of rockabilly trio yeah um so that that's another comparison with with you know rock and roll um I mentioned also during the mud performance that radial spangle effect of mm. the, uh, the 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 stage lights in, on the camera. Well, on this we get a complete psychedelic fucking overload of camera effects, don't we? They whoever's in charge of the faders, are, uh, you know, on, on the sort of visual mixer that day has gone, yeah, 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 all the colours coming in at once. Uh, maybe to kind of yes, ma- maybe to kind of you know cover up the fact that it's a crap song or whatever, <laughs> as uh, somebody's dad would probably say. Um, and I also note that from their advice, their previous advice to have a drink, have a drive on in the summertime, they've moved on to another example of seventies thinking, which is uh, unsolicited sexual attention. Uh, yes, because 
the lyrics in this keep going. Every time I make a move, she tell me no. Well, take the fucking hint then, mate. Leave her alone. Now, you've got to be persistent in the 70s. I think Gene Hunt from Life on Mars would probably have got along with their way of thinking. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they started off as a bit of a sort of a country jug band, you know, in the vein of Canned Heat. And they've gone through a glam phase, as we've pointed out. And here, it's it's like the early stirrings of pub rock, isn't it? It it feels very much like that, yeah. And that was a sort of... I mean, you know, it was just kind of the spirit of the times in some way, definitely. There's a lot of that kind of coursing through some of the sort of rockier things here, that particular kind of cadence, definitely. Mm. And I mean, you know, that's what was beginning to happen. And, you know, I mean, there's not just anything else that was kind of emerging. You obviously had Northern Soul in the air, all kinds of things in the air. It's like rock and roll revival, you know, and pub rock was just in its kind of phase of preceding um, punk, basically. So, yeah, yeah so maybe Mungo had his ear to the ground. I mean, sadly, there's hardly anyone in the audience, um, presumably because um, it gets to this point of the show where uh, the audience is allowed to stand next to the host. And so they're all kind of like crowding in, waiting for their moment. But uh, two lads, uh, by the end of the song, uh, there's two lads having a slow motion play fight near the front. Did you see that? They're kind of throwing punches each other in a in a kind of a oh. Western ballroom brawl style. And there's one lad in a bomber jacket with a tiger on the back and he's grooving away on his own. Well, this proves my point, doesn't it? Mungo Jerry were a bad influence. They were, they were a lads band that, that made people pretend to hit each other. And who knows where that can yes. be? Yes. Yeah, shocking. <laughs> well, the following week, long-legged woman dressed in black jumped 11 places to number 25 and it eventually peaked at number 13. However, this would be the last chart entry for Mungo Jerry until 1999 when Ray Dorset recorded Support the Tune for Newcastle United and it got to number 57. Kevin Keegan would have just loved it to have got to number one. <laughs> And of course, Newcastle United were in the FA Cup final in the year that we're talking about, just a few weeks later. That's right, yeah. Oh, God, yeah, I remember that. Beaten 3 0 by Liverpool, and um, I think with the opening goal by Kevin Keegan. And yes. uh, David Coleman says, um, Goals pay the rent, and Keegan does his share. <laughs> I think that oh, might be the first football match I ever remember because we were all watching it at Minona's house, and uh, she bet me 5p that Liverpool would would win and I uh, foolishly took her up on uh, on her bet maybe I think I went for Newcastle because I thought they were Notts County did your nan cash it in we lived... did your nan cash in a bet from a child you know what I, I bet she did <laughs> I bet she Bloody because a, 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 about a month or so later we had another bet I think I think I doubled down on it that Holland would beat West Germany in the World oh, Cup no. final I lost that as well <laughs> I know man and I, and I haven't gambled on football since <laughs> anyway, Mung, um, Ray Dorset is still going. He's uh, touring into his seventies, and he now has his own vape juice called Mungo Cherry. <laughs> Jerry and the long-legged woman who is dressed in black. Is there anyone you'd like to say hello to? Good heavens. There's been in the past a lot of big uh, double acts in history. Adam and Eve and um, also, she's put me off, Malcolm and Wise and Ross and Crummity and Ross and Gay. Ross and Gay? Oh, darling. I want to be everything. is surrounded by a gaggle of kids who have been lacerated by the 70s stick 
and he asks one girl if there's anyone she'd like to say hello to. She wants to say hello to Edmunds's beardy mouth and plants a kiss on it. Do you think this was set up beforehand or not? I don't, right? I've been thinking about this because in a lot of previous a lot of previous episodes, we've seen um, presenters who seem to be kind of sleezing up to the girls in the audience, and there just seems something mm. slightly non-consensual about it. Not n- not in the really grim sense that certain uh, presenters have been found guilty yes. in, a, in a court of law, but just something a bit off about that that dynamic. In this case, and I'm sorry to say this, I don't think there is. I think. Uh, in the in the no. eyes of the young women in this audience, Noel Edmonds is genuinely a sexy man. I think they genuinely want to get their hands mm. on him. There's no coercion at all, yeah. um, and we can we can yeah. say what we want about him. We can, we can hate him from a, from a distance, of, you know, of, of forty years or, or, or whatever. But I think he was the sex in 1974. I think he, you know, that's that's he that's what women want. Doesn't seem to want the attention. He just stands there. There's there's very little... I think it's only near the end that he actually bothers to put his arm around someone. Yeah, they're all over him like like an even cheaper suit than the one he's yes. wearing. <laughs> After running down a list of double acts, he introduces You Are Everything by Diana Ross and Marvin Gaye. This is the first release from the Diana and Marvin LP, which took two years to record due to Diana Ross's pregnancy. Marvin Gaye's reticence to record any more duets after the death of Tammy Terrell, both singers' solo careers, and Marvin Gaye's chronic weed habit, which led to them recording their parts separately. Diana Ross had already scored nine UK solo chart hits, including a number one with I'm Still Waiting in the late summer of 71. But Marvin Gaye hadn't had a top 10 hit since 1970, had no hit singles from What's Going On, and his last appearance in the charts was in October of 1973, when Let's Get It On only got to number 31. This song, a cover of the Stylistics tune, has nudged up from number nine to number seven. As neither of them are knocking around Shepherd's Bush at the moment, and Pan's people are already doing another song this week, we're treated to a BBC-made film of a couple of white people mooning about on a beach. Yeah, I, I, I love stylistics. I love things that Diana mm-hmm. Ross has done, and I certainly love things that Marvin Gaye has done, but I don't really love this at all, I think. Probably, don't you? Yeah, I mean, perhaps it's to do with you know what you were talking about, the fact that they had to record it in separate studios. But, I mean, if you can... Or maybe I'm unfairly comparing it with, you know... The deal with it ain't no mountain high enough with Tammy Terrell, but um, mm. but um, I never really cared for this at the time, and haven't can't find it myself to care for it now. Simon, um, we uh, we we experienced a uh, a Diana Ross duet in, in the last episode. What about this one? Yeah, we did, didn't we? Uh, and another one in which I suspected that the two. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Singers hadn't actually met. Um, mm. I probably do prefer the original by the stylistics in this case, but nevertheless, I think it's a decent bit of 70s soul. I quite like it. But come on, we're dying to talk about the video. <laughs> Let's talk about this film. Um, so well, this. Well, well, let me just say, let me just say that I much prefer this version to the stylistics one, and I love the stylistics. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, 
you know, when you compare it to Endless Love, I mean, it's a far better song. <laughs> but also, you can see Diana Ross knocking about with Marvin Gaye. Oh, yeah, certainly. Yeah, she'd have knocked off Marvin Gaye. Lionel Richie, no way. Not in a million years. I, but I think maybe the problem is Diana Ross. It's almost like, it just feels like she's sort of like wafting up front and centre of the song the whole time. And I don't think it really is a kind of true, a true lover's dialogue in that respect. Um, I think yeah. she seems to be microphone hogging a little bit. But. Well, she was pushed forward above, above Marvin Gaye. I mean, there was a, there was an argument uh, before they even started recording the album over what it would be called, Marvin and Diana or Diana and Marvin. And, you know, Marvin Gaye wasn't knocking off the head of Motown at the time. So he was fucked, wasn't he? That tells you something about her personality, doesn't it? Because, you know, not only does she uh, sort of elbow her way to the front of the Supremes and, you know, have have them renamed Diana Ross and the Supremes, but she's still at it when she's on a fucking duet record, you know, when supposedly the yeah. whole point of a duet is kind of equal billing. Unbelievable. Mm. I mean, and in the and in the UK, as we can see from the from the chart, actually, I mean, I was, I was shocked that, you know, nothing from what's going on got in the charts and, you know, let's get it on only got to number 31. And it, and it would look from our perspective that, you know, Marvin Gaye needed a bit of a leg up from Diana Ross. Yeah, probably. Um, and, you know, to be honest, we, there are, you know, what ifs we could throw in all day long. But if Mary Wilson had been pushed to the mm. front of the Supremes and had become the solo star and ended up duetting with Marvin Gaye, you know, Mary Wilson's voice would probably have complimented his a lot better but maybe mm. it wouldn't have been such a big hit. Anyway, let's talk about the film. Come on. So, Diana Ross, depicted in this film as a white girl, is seen moping on some steps near a beach until she <laughs> spies Marvin Gaye, a white man who looks like he stepped out of the window of John Collier, trolling about in double denim. But it isn't. It's someone who looks like him, remember? So it, it might be a white Eddie Kendricks or Edwin Starr or someone like that, for all I know. Who is this woman? It's doing my fucking head in. She looks massively familiar. Yeah, I mean, I was wondering if she'd been at a sitcom or something. Yeah, because all three of us have been have been hitting up Google because yeah. it's been bothering us yeah. before it, we recorded. I was wondering, is it an advert? Was she in like a perfume advert for, for Charlie or maybe Tweed by Lontheric or something like <laughs> <Yes>. that? Yes. <laughs> Seriously? Possibly, that, yeah. yeah. Or Maxine. Sit- Sitcom, I'm thinking maybe like she's somebody had a peripheral role in Man About the House, maybe as Sally Tom's saucy sister or something like that, or yeah, My Wife Next been. Door or something like that. It, one of those kind of, um, yeah, it's, it's something like that. It's definitely, yeah. Now, listeners, you know when I say, you know, hit up the uh, the video playlist we put up for every episode, you know, I, I usually say do it because it will help to enrich you of your knowledge of, of this episode of Top of the Pops. Now I'm saying it, please just look at the fucking thing. Look at this vi- Look at this film. <laughs> Tell me who it is. Because I know it's someone familiar. And, and, and I know there are people out there who look at it and go, oh, it's her, the stupid bastards. What's all weird? My, I'll tell you what my favourite scene is, though, in, in, in this film. It's the football scene. Because it, it does yes, us credit, it again, is. does us credit as a generation back then. We, you know, didn't, back, even if it was the summer of 76, even if temperatures were in the sort of like high 30s, you didn't dress in shorts and trainers when you were out. You had it still on your, your flares no. and, your, and, your, and your high heels or whatever. And you played football in your flares and in, in your high heels. Yeah. And that's how I think we developed the sort of skills that yeah. you know? That's how you played football on the beach, in your flares and in your high heels. I mean, obviously, you know, playing like that, you're going to have to have like your ball control is automatically going to be at that much superior. And, 
Yeah, I think that, that yeah. so that aspect. Well, I'm afraid that the fact that England didn't qualify for the World Cups of ah,但是不能在那里，不能在那里，不能在那里，不能在那里，不能在那里，不能在那里，不能在那里，不能在那里，不能在那里，不能在那里，不能在那里，不能在那里，不能在那里，不能在那里，不能在那里，不能在那里
that you know what was it was hardly ever there was it so i can't mm. be honest i've never seen one of these before so who else slade had one for goodbye to jane did they right okay yeah yeah slade had one for goodbye to jane yeah maybe it's because they were busy trying to break america mm. at that point uh, uh, let me guess there was some girl there and somebody waving at them there, there was a lot of there were a lot of antics Seems to remember vaguely because the one I've seen from 1973, they did a, a, a Civil War reenactment for American trilogy, <laughs> and they, you know, obviously they, they they couldn't fuck about with these things. You know, you, you you'd assume that they wouldn't have much time to make a film. I actually quite like the fact that our license fee money was going on this kind of stuff. It's quite nice that that they thought pop music was worth throwing a few quid at because I um. The, the only kind of equivalent to this that I can remember from, you know, my era, if you like, from the early 80s, was when somebody didn't come in the studio and they didn't have a dance for it. Uh, they'd have this kind of compilation of old footage of, you'd have like a steam train crashing and then you'd have somebody with, with a load of feathers strapped to their arms running off Worthing Pier trying to fly. And then you'd have a Victorian strongman lifting lifting up lifting up the dumbbells and that that kind of thing just all meaninglessly put together i think uh, they used it for steve silk hurley's jackie body and also for Qu- queen and david queen and david bowie under pressure was another one like that yeah the old crew wasn't used to that and it was a sort of to me it was always sort of faintly condescending really as if to sort of like you know talk about old, old, old world footage was full of people doing incredibly stupid things compared with prog rock you, you've even got that bit where the dog sniffing his balls in this in this clip which I like. It's it's a really seventies dog, actually. And the really seventies balls. Very seventies balls, indeed. But you you do expect to see some you know uh, weak old dog shit uh, lying on that road there. Mm. And this is white you know, shit. Go- white <laughs> shit as well. Yes. Going yeah white exactly white shit to to bring in the old uh, stand up comedians cliche. Um, but when they're having a kick around on the beach, uh, yeah, you're right because that 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 um, Brazilian version of uh, uh, football on the beach that Pele tried to popularise was it is it futsal or something they call it when they're having a kick yeah. on the sand but that's on the that's on the perfect sands of Rio de Janeiro but mm. British players on the beach had to contend with rusted Castrol GTX yeah. cans in rock pools and, and glass. lumps of dog shit and all that broken glass and dog mm. shit which yeah. probably would have, yeah, maybe enhanced your skills. So I do take your point a little bit there. Yeah, half broken glasses where you can still see the word lemonade just before a child puts his bare foot on exactly. it while running. Oh, that's my, that's <laughs> that public information film. That's the one that creeps me out most of all. Yeah. <laughs> the following week, You Are Everything moved up to number five, its highest position. The follow-up, Stop, Look, Listen to Your Heart and other stylistics cover only got to number 25 in August of this year. And, uh, yeah, if you know who that girl is, fucking tell me because it's doing my head. This is Marvin Gaye and you are everything. The reason I'm laughing is this, of course, being the Easter edition of Top of the Pops, I've been given some eggs and they've got all yucky, which uh, leads me rather neatly into a request to the younger viewers of Top of the Pops. Please don't go putting litter all over Wimbledon Common. You're causing terrible problems. I know the Wombles pick up litter, but they can only pick up enough to put in one bowl. That's why they're called the Wombles. And here they are, sound 20. Encrusted with more young ladies, appears with a handful of chocolate eggs and reminds us that it's Good Friday tomorrow and cracks, no pun intended, a really shitty joke about the Wombles. 
Formed in Wimbledon Common in 1968 by Elizabeth Beresford, the Womble shot to national prominence in the early 70s when the books were serialised on Jack and Ore, which led to a television series in 1973. We actually saw it being promoted on Top of the Pops in episode number three of Chart Music. Mike Batt, a musician who was on the balls of his arse after spending 11 grand on a rock orchestral LP that was never released, was approached to write the theme tune, but turned down the £200 flat fee in exchange for the musical rights to the characters. He spent a week in a homemade Womble costume made by his mum while he was writing the first two songs for the band. The debut single, the theme tune Wombling Song, had got to number four two months previously and this is a follow-up up from number 36 to number 20. Although Steel Eye Span filled in on one episode of Top of the Pops, this performance is by the people who played on the record, including Mike Batt, Chris Spedding, who produced the Sex Pistols, and drummer Clem Katina, who played on 42 number one singles in the UK, including Shaking All Over by Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, Tell Star by the Tornadoes, Make It Easy on Yourself and the Sun Ain't Gonna Shine Anymore by the Walker Brothers, Something in the Air by Thunderclap Newman, Hot Love and Telegram Sam, and Get It On by T-Rex, Jealous Mind by Alvin Stardust, and Save Your Love by Rene and Renato. What a fucking CV. <laughs> that is a pretty impressive band altogether. That's like a sort of hmm. British version of the Wrecking Crew or something. Yes, it is, isn't it? Look what they're mm. doing. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But it, and it's interesting. I mean, the audience, you know, the crowd, they're really up for this one. Have you noticed? I mean, there's, mm. you know, people are kind of swaying around rather numbly to a lot and of the. And they're not kiddies, are they? No, no. They're really up for this. I think, you know, but part of it is, I mean, I suppose there is, I don't know, there's Wobbling Song, which is so so. This is probably the best. Of, of, of the bunch when it comes to Wombles, Wombles hits really. I don't think that Super Womble, I think Super Womble is laboring the point a little bit. Um, mm. But this is, um, yeah, this, this, this Super this... Womble was very much the be here now of the Wombles, yeah. wasn't it? <laughs> it was, yeah, yeah, it, yes. Yeah, a cack and attempt at trying to fill in the future. But I think, you know, you just, you just bung people, this is what in this country, you bung people with a bit of Irish fiddle. And they absolutely love it. I mean, you know, they're just, yes. this is an audience that's desperately waiting for Come On Eileen to be written. You know, but in the yes. meantime, you know, they're just, I was just going to say, do you think yeah. Kevin Rowland's watching this and yeah. stroking a chin? That's right. Mm, or Ed Sheeran's Galway Girl. Yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, honestly, you bung it. I mean, it amazes people don't do it more often. They do it about once every five years. It's ridiculous. It's, um, yeah. They're just bunging a bit of Irish fiddle. And, you know, you see the, you know, the crowd really moves on that one. I mean, it's funny. There was obviously a bit of a Wombles mania. I remember, I think it was John Peel. It was John Peel saying at one point in about 1975, and I think he's just looking around in absolute despair at the pop cultural landscape. And I think the idea for him is that he was at one of these kind of Radio One summer fun spectacular days, whatever. And he stared out onto a lake, Mallory Park. Yeah, probably, yeah. And Tony Blackburn is in a speedboat being yes. driven by a Womble. <laughs> I think you know, oh, come, oh, come, friendly punk. So yeah. there's there's Wellington on guitar, and then he switches to saxophone. Uh, great Uncle Bulgaria's playing, a, I think he's playing a balalaika or something. Madame Cholet's on the fiddle, Simon. Yeah, you see, now I know why you chose this episode. It's to take the piss out of me, isn't it? <laughs> Listen, right, I don't care what you say. The violinist, the violinist in this band is a hottie. She's a wilf. <laughs> wilf. <laughs> For people who haven't heard previous episodes, we, we can't just sort of allude to this. I've, I've got to fess up. I did fancy Madame Cholet, as, as, as has been hinted at. And, and I, this is in a kind of pre-sexual way, because I was only six, but there was something about her I liked. And uh, I think it was a combination of the fact that you sort of felt that she'd look after you, she'd make you something mm. nice to eat, 
but she'd do mm. it in a slightly flirtatious French sort of way, a bit like Vicky Michelle from A Low A Low. And right. you know, I think I think at that age there were only two people I fancied, and one of them was Madame Cholet, <laughs> and the other one was the receptionist from Hong Kong Fooey. If you remember her, she was great. Oh, oh yes. Oh, well, I mean, you, you weren't alone there. Yes. <laughs> it's all coming out now. <laughs> hello, hello. <laughs> Orinoco's plain front man, of course. Uh, Tomsk is on the sax and uh, Bongo's on the drums. There's no sighting of Tobamori. What's going on there? Do you think he's their road manager or something? Maybe he's done a Robbie Williams, you know, maybe sort of gone off in search of some kind of solo glory. It's kind of odd. Yeah, or or he's, he's in the hotel after binging on rubbish. Yeah, more than one bowl, as uh, Edmonds would have it with his little joke there. Well, yeah. I mean, what do we think of this as a song if it wasn't if it wasn't being played by um, people in furry costumes? Um, do you know what? It's not bad as a pop record. It's uh, It reminds me a lot of kind of imperial phase Bay City Rollers. I was never a Rollers fan, but there's something kind of undeniably sort of stomp along about it and you can't really argue with it uh you you can you can definitely imagine this this record played by guys in tartan rather than fur (laughs) one thing i'll say is uh, uncle bulgaria is probably too old to be a pop star he's like you know i don't know c6 steve or something yeah i think that's why they gave him the traditional instrument though it's not yet yeah, a bit of racial stereotyping as well because he's sort of Eastern, yes. Eastern European one. Mm. Mike Bat, he actually has a sort of place in the annals of the history of electronic music. He in, in the early seventies, he was made a series of like you know that Moog synthesizer or Moog synthesizer that mm. was um, you know obviously around. And he made a record called the Old Ye Oldie Moog, and it was a synth <laughs> sort of like synth folk treatments or whatever in which he was attempting to kind of blend the future with um, you know he sort of grand old Daisy and. Um, was there an was there an E on the end of that moog, by the way? Um No. Oh wasted opportunity. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> but yeah, sorry. I mean this is this is the biggest crowd yet, isn't it? Mm. Mm. People have forgotten about Noel Edmonds. And he's he's just as hairy as they are. I mean later on with the Wombles, he did tend to um I think at one, one point he, he he just took to appearing as himself. I think you know, the the, the, the facade came off, you know. The yeah. Head. The head thing came up, and he would just perform. You just have the kind of womble pause, basically. He'd stomp around in them, but otherwise, you know, he'd just be Mike Bat. You know, he, it's um, he couldn't live behind that mask he any longer. He no, no, he felt the truth had to act. It was like when Kendo Nagasaki unmasked himself. <laughs> yes, yeah, definitely. The thing with Mike Bat is, and the wombles. On on the one hand, you sort of feel like they're quite well intentioned because they're teaching people to uh, be a bit more environmentally conscious and to pick up litter on the other hand yeah. it's a fact that if you buy a Wombles record you are funding the Tory party because uh, yes. Mike, Mike Bat was a massive conservative in fact he actually composed the theme music for their um, election campaign in 2001 for all the good it did them of course but um, yeah, well, that- yeah remember you're a cunt <laughs> I think the thing I think that with the litter campaigns of the seventies, I think that the it wasn't so much about eco consciousness, which was also a bit weird. It was about it was anti litter loutishness. It was an yeah, anti, it yeah. was an anti lout thing rather than a pro ecological thing. Yeah, that's a good point. And yeah. is this the first example in the UK of um, a kids' TV program or any TV program kind of uh, going outside its boundaries and um, raking in cash in other ways? Because I remember in 1974, I did get a Womble soap on a rope. 
which just sat on the end of the bath and collected dust <laughs> until it looked yeah, it might be. really like a womble. Because, I mean, we know about the arches and the banana splits and yeah. all that kind of stuff. But I think this might be the first time... And, and the goodies came later, wasn't it? Yes. Hmm. Yeah, or about, yeah, slightly, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, 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 you know, there, there would be... You know, there'd be loads of sitcom characters and and actors, you know, trying their hand at releasing records and stuff, but not not on this level. So this paved the way for things like Mr. Blobby or whatever. Oh yes, but fucking Noel was uh, having a having a good think about that when he was watching the Wombles. Yeah. <laughs> he was, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Pinky and Perky. Yes, there we go. You're right. You're right. So the following week, the song jumped up to number eight and would get as high as number three. The follow-up, Banana Rock, saw the band take a cod reggae turn and it got to number nine later that summer. And they were held off the Christmas number one by Mud with Wombling Merry Christmas. The band split up in 1975, but Remember You're a Womble would get to number 13 in 1998 and an appearance at Glastonbury in 2011 outdrew Don McLean on the main stage. I've not heard Banana Rock, but would I be right in assuming it sounds a bit Brexit to modern ears? Um, it's actually it's not that bad. It it could have gone a lot worse on a scale of naught to Mike Reed's Calypso. Or I think it's I think it's it's a notch below reggae like it used to be by Paul Nicholas. Okay, all right. Not offensive, but just why. Wombles, and whatever you do, remember you're a Womble. That's Sound 20 this particular week. And I must say, uh, without being rude to them, I'm very relieved that's over because great Uncle Bulgaria had, uh, well, he threatened to streak through the studio. So, dear, we were worried. At this week's number 22, we find the Chilites and a number entitled... Homely Girl. Quite right, quite right. your poor little heart when the boys used to say you look better in the dark as the camera swings from the Wombles back to Edmonds, we can see two lads in the midst of a full-on Irish reel at the back of the studio before they're stopped by a floor manager see you write a bit of fiddle we go fucking mental don't we mm-hmm. Edmonds informs us that Great Uncle Bulgaria had threatened to streak through the studio even though he was clearly naked from the waist down throughout the performance and then gives a girl with the most Essex accent ever the chance to introduce the next song. Homely girl. <laughs> Formed in Chicago in 1959, the Chai Lights first landed in the UK charts with For God's Sake Give More Power to the People in 1971 and then got to number three in January of 1972 with Have You Seen Her. This is their first appearance in the charts since Oh Girl, which got to number 14 in June 1972 and was number one in the US, and it's up from number 28 to number 22. Their last seven releases have failed to make the UK chart, including Stoned Out of My Mind, fucking hell, Britain, what are you like? And because they're probably in America right now, Pan's people are trotted out. It's not the best Chai Light song, is it? It's not. It's not. The, it's not the Chai Lights at the best with, with their their ugly duckling classic here. Um, yeah, I mean there have been some great Chai Light songs. You name some of them, and of course, 
Could also mention Are You My Woman, as sampled by Beyonce on uh, Crazy Yes. And um, a particular favourite of mine, um, do you know the one, There Will Never Be Any Peace Until God Is Seated at the Conference Table. Extraordinary yes. long title, but a bit of a tune. <laughs> yes. That. Wonderful record, but nah, this is this is awful, isn't it? It's an awful record. I, I think this is all right. I like really? This. Yeah. Oh, man it, alive. It, it feels like it deserves the performance, and uh, that's not saying a great deal. <laughs> Go on, it's performance, then. performance about it is. Well, yeah, I mean, once again, it's that kind of wonderfully literal Flick Colby school of um, choreographic thought. Um, um, it is strange, you know, when you talk, there's always these ridiculous references to sort of men and dads all perving over Pan's people. And you think, why? And, you know, because obviously, you know, the working with these incredibly kind of, you know, strict and sort of narrow guidelines as regards sexuality in terms of the movement so they just always do this kind of weird got this weird let's kind of like bobs and moves and shuffles or whatever that are all entirely sexless um um but maybe, maybe that was it maybe maybe, maybe i don't know that the, the kind of sort of seeing pervs sitting at home you know maybe that's kind of part of the point they'd probably be a bit put off if they actually did try to do something sexy you know that might actually kind of um disconcert them a bit um but um, yeah, well, once again, yeah, quintessential pants people. It's sad to think that uh, is it Ruth out of the pants people? She's in this, and she died recently. She didn't. She yes, with a little RIP. If that's not already been issued, it's a costume change routine, basically, isn't it? They go from dowdy flared Greenham common dungarees with um, <laughs> painted on freckles to the flounciest, bounciest, backless shorty nighties ever with spangly bits, feathery trim, and matching mules. Yes, I've got. I've got two words written down here. Dad Nirvana. <laughs> Tease are sliding off laps yeah, yeah, yeah. As, yeah. As, as this song goes on. <laughs> I mean, I agree that these actual costumes, yes, definitely kind of militate against what we were saying earlier on. It has to be said. Um, you know, brief, brief little sort of flashes of fire and what have you. Um, yeah, I mean, the costume, the, 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 the kind of like the 90 thing, it's just incredible. It is it's probably the best thing they that they ever put on. I'm not saying not saying that in a sexual way, but it's probably the you know the the most expensively made. You are kind of saying it in a bit of a sexual way. Well, yeah, <laughs> it looks like they've you know they've had their hand in the petty cash till, got right <laughs> down the bottom for it. The one thing to say for this song is that it's not the UB40 cover version. Yes, definitely, yeah. That's the only thing I'll say for it. The next week, Homely Girl soared up to number eleven, and it eventually got to number five. The follow-up. I Found Sunshine only got to number 35 and the follow-up to that Too Good To Be Forgotten made it to number 10 in November of this year and the next three singles made the top five and as Simon's just pointed out Homely Girl was covered or smothered by UB40 in 1989 in their Rasta Man show Waddy Waddy <laughs> Manor and it got to number six <laughs> big pump tomorrow. It'll be because an anniversary falls this Friday. Twenty years ago, on April the 12th, the record company in America produced a record. They all had their fingers crossed, you see. They didn't know whether it'd be successful. In fact, it turned out to be rather good. Three times in the chart. It's this week's number 17, Bill Haley. <gasps> rock around the clock. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, a rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, a rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, a rock, we're going to rock. Around the clock, turn up. Edmunds points out that the following single is celebrating its 20th anniversary tomorrow. 
Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and his Comets. Formed in Pennsylvania in 1952 by a former country singer who was renowned as one of the best yodelers in America, Bill Haley and his Comets recorded the first rock and roll single to appear on the American charts. Crazy Man Crazy. In 1954, they recorded their second single, Rock Around the Clock, a cover of a song first recorded by Sunny Day and his nice. Sunny Day, fucking hell. <laughs> However, it wasn't until it was used in the 1955 film Blackboard Jungle on the insistence of Glenn Ford that the song took off, staying at number one for eight weeks. Meanwhile, in the UK, the band made their chart debut with Shake, Rattle and Roll, which got to number four in January of 1955, while Rock Around the Clock only got as high as number 17 that month. However, it would re-enter the charts in October of 1955 and spend five weeks at number one. The band would have 11 more hits in the UK before falling out of favour, but Rock Around the Clock would be re-released in 1968 when it got to number 20, and it was re-released again in 1974. It's gone up from number 20 to number 17. This is a dad double whammy, isn't it? <laughs> Crumpets and proper music. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. It's I really mean, it's, odd, isn't it? It's, but, it mm. but actually, it was going back to what I was saying earlier on. There was a real rock and roll revival going on around here. So there's no... Yeah. It's not a sort of random sort of tossing out sort of thing that's going on here. I mean, it, 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 this was very much in the air. There was all kinds of... You know, documentaries about Elvis and things like that. I mean, it was just this first, like I say, this first moment of sort of postmodern retrospection, you might say, in pop history, where they're just looking right back to the beginnings. And, you know, and it's only about 20 years earlier and everyone's suddenly getting... It's the first sort of bit of retromania, I think, you know, the first boot of retromania that you get in British pop culture. So it's all part of that. It's going on. Yeah, in fact, there's quite a lot about way. this in in, uh, in Simon Reynolds' book, Retromania, isn't there? There's a whole chapter right. about this mm. kind of era. Yeah. I, I think it particularly focuses on 1973. But, yeah, all this stuff was in the air, definitely. Yeah, it, it would be certainly nice thing that um, our dear sort of alma mater melody maker would have been, um, you know, embraced all of this. But unfortunately, it was still dominated by jazz luminaries like, like Steve Race. And they were openly disgusted by rock around the clock. I remember I kind of reported about it at the time, talking about... Um, um, flower beds being trampled in Croydon by yes. following uh, <laughs> performances in a Blackboard jungle. Um, well, it's true, isn't it? I mean, it, this song caused riots. It seems weird to us now, but this song yeah. did cause yeah. riots. People would turn up to the cinema and slash the seats. When, mm. you know, the, the opening credits, people would lose their shit and go crazy when mm. this song came on. Yeah, I mean, there were riots at the dock in Southampton when Bill Haley and the Comets arrived. And this is what's so weird. Seeing him on top of the pops amid kind of, you know, these fairly, um, I don't know, dowdy British, you know, not not exactly nobodies, but people like Mungo Jerry, let's say. Suddenly, we've got this kind of iconic face yeah. of rock and roll. Obviously, he's a bit fatter and a bit older, with his, but he's still got his kiss curl. Yeah. Still recognisably, you know, one of one of the faces that if you went to a 50s-themed diner, there'd be a kind of Warhol-esque yes. print of his face on the wall. And there he is in the top of the pop studio. It's really odd, isn't it? It is. It is. Because, yeah, it's only 20 years. I mean, obviously, Noel Edmonds talked about 20 years, and it, it, it makes it sound like an absolute lifetime, which probably would have felt like in, in 1975. You know, now we're talking about 20 years. 20 years just went mass, massive attack, you know, made Mets yeah. whoever, you know, and it, it's, you know, time is a lot more kind of closed up now. Um, I mean, he died in 1981, That's right, Bill, yeah. Bill Haley. And I remember Clive James probably described him as the first rock and roll star to die of yes. old age. He was actually 55. No, he didn't, though, did he? He, he died of a brain tumour. Well, yeah, but died of, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, that was Clive James's line, which is a bit depressing because he was yeah. only 55 when he did. Yeah, so, uh, yeah and uh, when we when we see this episode here, he looks like, you know, pretty decrepit then. Mm. And 
this harks back to the previous episode we did when I was talking about how old Diana Dawes yes. appeared to me mm. uh, in the uh, video for Prince Charming. Uh, you know, she seemed impossibly old, this sort of old granny on top of the pops. She was 49 there. Uh, Bill Haley is 49 in this Shit. episode, and that is the same age as I am now. How fucking mortal do I feel oh, about man. that? Mm. And of course, yes, yeah, seven years later, he'd be dead. Um, he did, uh, he admitted he was an alcoholic actually in 1974 in an interview mm. with the BBC. So yes. he was obviously going through a bit of a tough time. So that partially explains why it does look a bit rough. And people just had harder lives yeah. in those days, I suppose. Mm. But, but you notice that the song, the, the, uh, the rendition of the song is a bit slower than the classic version. Yeah. It's almost like when you're watching a testimonial football yes. match. They're playing at a sort of <laughs> testimonial match pace. And, and um, the audience, um, far from slashing the seats, um, don't seem to know quite no, what to don't. do with it. And they, so they react by doing mud yes, style dancing. Yes, they do. Yeah, they're they're there's those two girls. Mud there's some really piss poor attempts at Ted dancing by two girls in matching brown jumpers. Yeah. The other reason mm. why Bill mm. Haley might have looked a bit old for his age, he had, he had at least 10 children. Oh, mate, he rocked around the clock, didn't he? <laughs> so you can't blame the guy for looking a bit haggard by the age of 49. It is fascinating, Quinn, just going back to that bit about the kind of the slashing of the seats, whatever, the kind of energies that rock and roll supposed to believe. You do think of them as sexual. With Elvis Presley, it's obviously sexual energy that's been kind of released into the culture, whereas Bill Haley, he's, he's a bit dumpy. He's not He's not exactly a looker. He's, he's like one of the other sergeants in Sergeant Bilko, like Grover or something like that. He's, he's a big portly hunt geezer. So <laughs> whatever is exciting that energy is, it's not really to do with, yeah. like, you know, this kind of sexual icon that suddenly kind of bursts on the scene. I mean, that was Elvis's job. But Bill Haley, it's it's something else, clearly. It's just the, it's just the music. Because when Bill Haley and the comics pitched up in Britain, the, the initial reaction by the kids was, oh, my God, he looks like your dad. Hmm. Yeah. And he was, he yeah. was old. He was 29, 30, and that was very old. Yeah, and I think in, in a lot of ways, and even, even musically, I'd say that Bill Haley and the comics have got as much in common with the Glenn Miller Orchestra as they do with, with anything by Elvis, for example. You know, it's basically it's basically um, big band swing mm. given a bit more of a kick. I mean, one question I, I, I want to ask is is what was Bill Haley thinking when he was behind the curtains and mud was on? <laughs> so, have I created a monster? Seven days jankers. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the following week, the song would move up to number twelve, its highest position, and the band would continue to tour in the UK until nineteen seventy nine. In actual fact, the last known performance of this song was at that year's Royal Command performance, alongside Les Dawson, Marty Kane, Yul Brynner, Bernie Clifton, Hinge and Brackett, Jim Davidson and Boney M, and they were introduced by... Noel Edmonds. Noel Edmonds. Bill Haley died in February of 1981 and his last chart appearance was a Stars on 45 style single of his songs which got to number 50 in April of that year. Fucking Jim Davidson, what a cunt. No argument there. <laughs> I bet because he, he was in he was in quite a few Royal Command performances they probably thought oh let, let's put him in for Phil. He's a racist. <laughs> Sound a day over 50, rock around the clock, and of course, Bill Haley. Now, last Saturday night, about uh, 285 million people were all pinned to their TV sets. No, it wasn't the return of Magic Roundabout starring Diana Dawes, it was in fact the Eurovision Song Contest, of course. And a lot of upsets, and we've got the song that won right here by the Swedish group ABBA. It's all about Waterloo. Take it away, ABBA. <laughs> 
rapid-fire shit jokes about Bill Haley and the magic roundabout from Edmonds, and then the Top of the Pops debut of ABBA. Formed by Benny Anderson of the Hep Stars, Bjorn Juveus of the Hootenanny Singers and two solo singers, Agneta Falskog and Anna Frigg Lungstad in 1972, ABBA had already had hit records in Sweden, but they were always intent on international success. To this end, they made two attempts to win the Melody Festivalen, Sweden's Song for Europe, but failed in 1972 and 1973. However, they had one more go in 1974 with Waterloo and it was selected as Sweden's entry. Five days before this episode, they won the Eurovision Song Contest in Brighton and they wisely stuck around for a few more days to accept an offer from the BBC to appear on top of the pops. Simon, Brighton, that's your ends, isn't it? Is there any plaques or anything around there? Funny you should mention that. They just unveiled it recently um, at the Brighton Dome after all these years. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's crazy that there isn't some kind of statue of them there. But yeah, there is now, at long last, a blue plaque. Lovely. I think David should go first and be wrong about ABBA, <laughs> just so I can correct him afterwards. Right, OK, I'm stepping out of this. No, um, oh yes, I'm on a BBC, what was it, it comes on BBC4, doesn't it? Um, the documentary about the meaning of ABBA, I think it is. Yeah, and you were you were quite ABBA-sceptic, weren't you? Yeah, I was, I was meant to go on and be an ABBA-sceptic based on the fact that years earlier for that column I did for Uncut called The Reaper, I'd done a sort of anti-ABBA article. And um, I went on, I was doing a favour for somebody who was a producer who had helped me out with the book I was doing. And then, of course, about a million people watch it. And then it's rebroadcast every six months and everybody has a good old laugh at me um, for my kind of somewhat just, you know, heavily edited contributions. Are, are you basically saying that they've, they've done to you what happens to Homer Simpson in the uh, Gummy Venus de Milo episode where, you know, yes. he's, he's, he's being filmed in a police station and it's all chopped around to say something you didn't mean to say? With the, with the, yeah, with the, you'll notice I, I do have a clock in the background here that's 20 past five, 20 to three. Oh, you didn't um, say Agneta had a sweet, <laughs> sweet can, did you, David? <laughs> And yet it did have a sweet can, let's be fair about that. I mean, my actual views about Abra are much more kind of, you know, mixed and sort of equivocal, really. I mean, it's, it's, um, they're just, they're just an odd case. I mean, I, I find them actually hard to kind of fix in a sort of general historical timeline. They really are sort of sui generis to me, you know, they really are kind of, um, and clearly, you know, they did have, it influenced other things and people tried to, you know, Brotherhood of Man tried to impersonate them or whatever. You've got little things like that. And then they sort of cascade more subtly throughout, say, sort of early 80s Simple Minds or whatever, you know, that kind of sort of um, glacial sort of feel that they get. Um, um, and I, I really enjoyed this at the time. It was, it was, I mean, in 1974, Eurovision Santos itself, it's, it was a close run thing. They had a weird point system then. And um, ABBA, you know, only, only, didn't win it by much. Um, they won it by six points. Six points, yeah. But, but there weren't the, that many points the, on The offer. scoring system was much, much less. Well, the, you know, there was there was, uh, there was was less of Europe to go around then, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. They got absolutely. 24 points or something like that. Olivia Newton-John came third for the UK. And she's and she's in this chart. Yeah, I know. I find that wrong. Long live it's, love. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I must admit, I was on the night. I think I was probably kind of, you know, abandoned my usual sort of 11-year-old patriotism and, and got behind ABBA. I wasn't aware, of course, about the Legends right, of yeah. entry, which uh, was the trigger for the um, yeah, downfall of the fascist yes. regime in that country, of course. So, yeah, altogether, a pretty good Eurovision Song yes. Contest, actually. You know, it launched <laughs> ABBA and... Yeah, uh, some fascists got kicked in. Hurrah! Yeah. You know, Olivia Newton-John was a little bit of a kind of sort of sideshow, really, to the whole thing. Not even um, British. No, not even British, exactly. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean uh, Waterloo was really the, the default British entrant that year, wasn't it? Because it was about a war that we won. So, you know, we'll, we'll have it. 
there's something charmingly guileless about ABBA at this point at this stage in their career um from Agnetta's expression of kind of slightly cross-eyed confusion uh, in the performance to that um, English as a second language diction they have at this point. How could I ever refuse mm. um, that thing? Um, but that, uh, well, the, the glacial sound that uh, David talks about has yet to emerge. That kind of darkness lurking under the surface from, you know, Frida being the daughter of a Nazi rapist and all the marriage turmoil which informed... Yeah some of their best work that stuff had yet to, yet to emerge but i i do I, I absolutely fell in love with abbott not at this point but a few years later on the first record by them that i bought was not greatest hits volume one but volume two yes which is yeah a we had that record i think eyes. i was inspired by things like um i think it would have been things like take a chance on me and angel eyes voulez-vous and particularly i mean it's been murdered it's been just it's it's gone now because of partridge but knowing me knowing yeah. you is just one of the greatest records ever made if, if it hadn't been ruined by by Coogan and co um, so so I, yeah I, I think Abbott at their best they are Northern European soul music that is the soul of Northern Europe and people say oh well they never influenced anything else but Scandinavian pop or nearly all Scandinavian pop is influenced by Abbott everything from Aha, through the cardigans, the knife, Robin, all that kind of stuff mm. uh, is so much in, in debt to that um, quite kind of um, cold but poignant um, sound that, that ABBA had. Um, there was a, a great ITV documentary um, easily a decade or more ago with Bjorn and Benny where they actually talked about how they went about writing their harmonies and I'm no musicologist, I don't care what anyone says but it was really fascinating seeing them take it apart and, and show they're, they're really quite innovative way of um, making these harmonies mm. happen. I wish I could remember uh, enough about it to to tell you, but go and have a look on YouTube if it's there. Um, another thing that makes me feel quite quite fondly about them is that um, my dad was once mistaken for Benny Anderson by a group of <laughs> Japanese tourists really? in London. And um, <laughs> yeah, and and to be fair, my dad did look quite a lot like Benny Anderson. That that's the pianist, yeah. by the way, the beardy one. Uh, so, of course, he played along and signed autographs for them. You'd have to, wouldn't oh, you? Oh, of course. My dad got mistaken in a transport cafe for being Val Dunican <laughs> by, uh, by, by someone behind the till, and, uh, which was weird because he was wearing his co-op overalls at the time. Well, my dad, okay, because my dad's better than your dad's, he got mistaken for being a beetle one time. No! Yep. He was coming out of a hotel that they were in, and he, you know, in, in his view, he had sort of dark hair, and uh, yeah, it was a bit of a kind of flurry of screams, and then he realised that uh, he wasn't Which a top. Um, oh, any of them, I mean, you know, they, they all look the same at that point, didn't they? Oh, take your um, pick, didn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, probably George Harrison, I suspect, the kind of hair he would have had then. Um, yeah, but, but so Abba, I mean, I loved this at the time, and I really liked Abba all the way through to about 77, 78. Then something happened to me. I developed a kind of um, a sort of very adolescent seriousness about there being good music pop music. I started reading the music press, and uh, suddenly Abba became kind of a boatman. And I, you know, I remember writing an essay in which I describe him as a, a, a symbol of the toothpaste society. You know, they were, sort of, they were antiseptic <laughs> and clean or whatever. So I had to kind of reject Abba, even though I was no, polystyrene over here. So things like, yeah, yes. exactly, take, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> take take a chance on me and things like that. I had to kind of suppress, you know, the fact that they still actually were genuinely infectious, strong pop songs um so um but you know actually everybody i mean 
actually punctual there was a story about Sid Vicious um, them being at an airport and Sid Vicious spots them and he kind of chases after them the two you know the women in the group and they kind of run off in fright he's actually trying to get their autograph um, <laughs> so people you know there wasn't some sort of anti-Abba sentiment expressed by you know the kind of punk and post-punk you know, particularly and definitely you know you can definitely hear that sort of glacier thing later on in the, in the early 80s although I mean yeah it's, it's a curious one it was not to say that like you know negates their kind of quality I just think that they're kind of the very fact they've never reformed I also think is kind of impressive that's, that's quite classy yeah, isn't it yeah yeah. the yeah. fact they've never gone in for it because when, when people do it's never a one-off and it always has a sort of spoiling effect on what they've wasn't done wasn't there before. talk about a reunion though recently there was I think but well I don't know if there was but it, I mean obviously I yeah, I don't know if they're ever going to do it. I actually saw they, they, um, two of them when they uh, when they launched the Abba World exhibit in um, Earl's Court or Olympia a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I, I went along to the launch of that, and uh, two of them turned up, and it really confused me, right? Because Frida was now blonde, and Bjorn was now beardy. Oh. And it was like the, um, the, oh, no. the two of them were trying to yeah. embody the entire group within you know within two two people. Yes. Yeah, 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 and there's always something a bit know. disingenuous about ABBA as well. I mean, there's a whole sort of, I mean, you know, in terms of the meaning of ABBA, there's all kinds of sort of meanings that can be extracted. Well, probably, I'm sure they're very premeditated about the structure of the songs and everything like that. But everything else that they kind of end up signifying a meaning to people that eventually sort of goes through, you know, gay subculture and the film Mamma Mia and stuff like that. There's a there's whole books to be written, you know. But as for this performance, yeah, I mean, we don't know that all that's going to happen, and no, yeah, yeah, we've got to make mention of. Beyond's explosion guitar, it's fucking mint, isn't it? Brilliant, yeah. Better than Super Yob. Yeah, and the star-shaped guitar of the bloke from the Glitter Band. I think those yeah. three are the are the are the definitive guitars of the era. Um, they're wearing the same gear as they did at Eurovision, so hopefully they uh, had time to nip into a dry cleaner. And uh, yeah, the audience are fucking loving it, aren't they? There's two girls at the front, and they are violently getting down. Well, you can't not love it. It's just a romp, isn't it, this song? The thing is, though, this yeah. is something that occurred to me, because obviously we're yeah, looking at this yeah. with the benefit of hindsight, but um, yeah. the people yeah. watching this performance would have had no reason to think that ABBA would be anything other than a one-hit wonder, because they were they were yeah. Eurovision winners. And uh, I think uh, yeah. we, we looked at 1975's Eurovision winners in a recent episode, mm. and, yes. and they did nothing else. Again. Mm. You know, it was the standard thing that if, if you won Eurovision, you might have a hit with that song, and that was your lot. So uh, did, yeah. nobody would have had any idea. If your song yeah. was English language. Yeah, that was your lot. Yeah, and that's been, let's face it, that's been the case ever since. The only group that's ever made a serious... Well, Bucks Fizz did all right. Bucks Fizz did all right. But... Um, sorry, yeah, sorry. I, I, I just oh, yeah. think um, people were uh, people were witnessing history and not knowing it, and that that is a fascinating thing in itself. Yeah. And even at this stage, honestly, you no, know, Lennon mm. is clearly thinking that you know he's explaining who yeah. they are. I don't think that he's kind of. Uh, oh, he says quaw, doesn't he? Quaw yeah, about the ladies and yeah, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. If they hadn't have won the Eurovision Song Contest five days previously, would we have heard from them, or were they just too good? We'd all be speaking Portuguese now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the following week, Waterloo was the highest new entry at number 17. Then it shot up to number two. And the week after that, it became number one and stayed there for two weeks. BBC took a bit of a punt there, didn't they? Putting it on top of the pops. Wasn't even in the chart. Oh, good mm. for them. The follow-up, Ring Ring, their 1973 Eurovision entry, was released in June but only got to number 32. But they'd start to dominate the charts from late 1975 and would have eight number ones. 
That's ABBA meeting there, Waterloo. And in case you wonder what ABBA means, it in fact is the initials of the names. There's uh, Alan and Barry and Brian and Alexander. I don't know where the ladies fit in, but... We stick with the Eurovision. We go on the link to Bremen, where we see Terry Jacks, number one for the second week running. Goodbye to you, my trusted friend. Edmonds with the shitty jokes again, for fuck's sake, shut up you cunt. <laughs> Followed by Letching of Frida Agnetta before introducing Terry Jackson's season in the sun. Born in Winnipeg in 1944, Terry Jacks was the lead singer in the Chessmen in the mid-60s, a local band, before falling into production. In 1973, he was producing for the Beach Boys, who were working up an English-language version of Le Moribond, a 1962 Jacques Brel song where everyone was encouraged to have a good piss-up at his funeral. When the Beach Boys decided to junk the song, Terry picked it up in a womble-like fashion, fiddled about with the lyrics some more and released it himself. This is his third week at number one and they're screening a clip from the German TV show Musikladen, which appears to be made for the BBC as they've changed the background titles to the English translation of the show's name, Music Shop. This is a bit of a downer, isn't it, after Waterloo? <laughs> I mean, I, I was 11 when this was released and, of course, I heard the subject matter and being a somewhat credulous child, I actually thought that... Terry Jackson was genuinely dying and that this was his kind of swan song to the world that rather romantic and poignantly made it to number one and that he might sort of peg it any week now and perhaps the sort of song would kind of outlasting, you know, be a posthumous number one. Um, you know, like for the weeks And people go on about Black Star exactly. as if it was innovative. <laughs> yeah, so I, you know, I was convinced that, you know, he was basically, that this is all pure autobiography. Um, of course, the original Jacques Brel um, version that you're talking about is a far more sardonic effort. You know, it's real kind of go, yes. boil your buttons. It's, it's real kind of, you know, about his, you know, his ex-wife was having an affair about the local priest who he disdained. Yeah. It's a much more sarcastic thing. And there's another yeah. version in between, I think it's Robert Kuhn, that's also similarly got a kind of like bitter sort of und undertow to it. Whereas here, I think he has just gone straight. It's for, very American, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, sentimental. I mean, I, I, I did. Very, very highway to yeah, heaven. I, I, I did dis, apart from the fascination of the fact that he might die in a week soon, I, mean, I disliked this song intensely. I thought, you know, if anybody, I would have actually, if anybody played it at a funeral, I, I would have heckled, you know, it was. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> I've got a list of songs that if, if, they're played at a funeral that I'm at, I'm getting yeah. up and walking out. Rubbish. But but right at the top is, and I've told people, I've, there's some people who've suggested this song as their funeral song, mm. uh, someone I used to know who's a twat. Mm. When you're going down the travelator towards the furnace, he wanted um, Redemption Song by Bob Marley played. And I said, if I'm there and that song gets played, I'm ripping the lid off the coffin and I'm punching <laughs> you in the face until you go down the fucking hole. Telling you. <laughs> so yeah, wouldn't it be great, mm. David, if, you actually believed you went through life believing that every song that anyone ever sung on top of the pops from the charts was actually a real story imagine yes. running into school and going yeah. hey Gary Glitter's forming a gang and it's open membership <laughs> Elton John's got a rocket <laughs> yeah yeah well David Bowie's irretrievably lost in space yeah will he ever come back yeah. He still managed to sort of like record up there, but <laughs> death pop was a big thing around this time. You had this, you had uh, Sonny by Bobby Hebb, and you had Two Little Boys by Rolf Harris, of course. And there was this weird kind of um, 
morbidity in the uh, in the tastes of of the record buying public at this time because I can certainly imagine hearing something like Seasons in the Sun once on the radio mm. and being a bit moved by it if you were of that kind of maudlin bent. Yeah. Um, but then to think that has moved me if I go and buy it maybe it'll move me again and I will yeah. put that record on at home and try and recreate that that sadness that it made me feel. I find that really peculiar and I wonder how you know whether people did sit at home and play this record that often or whether they sort of bought it as a mark of respect or, you know this song has moved me therefore I will buy it but mm. you know maybe it would lose out to uh, let's say Waterloo by ABBA when it when when it came to needle time at home <laughs> yeah yeah and the, the other thing is um I'll say it's translated from French so uh I haven't had a chance to check mm. the uh, Jacques Brel original. The lyrics are totally different. Oh yeah, trust me. And hmm. it's pretty awful, isn't it? It's uh, the stars we could reach were just starfish on the beach. I mean, for fuck's sake. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You get yeah. to the point where you just say, "Well, just fucking die then." Hmm. <laughs> hmm. One thing I do find enviable about Terry Jackson, I think maybe you guys would also agree with me. He has got the thickest hair I've ever seen. Yes. Um, I'm not sure if he ever went bald in later life. I don't no. think he, he will have done. He cannot possibly. That's a mm. proper microphone head of hair he's got going yeah. on there. He looks like the American wrestler King Harley Race. Take All right, I'll take your word for that. <laughs> yeah, just yeah, just take my word on that. There's um, someone out there who'll know what mm. I mean. And another interesting thing, just um, in terms of the composition of, of this, or, or the arrangement rather than the composition, is uh, there's, there's a crunching key change at one point, about two-thirds of the way through. And then there's another key change, even higher. And then yes. there's another one. Boom, yes. boom, boom. Just I know. Almost, almost to, to, to the limits of his vocal I ability. Yeah, I think, you know, the... the yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, if, if, there was, if there was a 12-inch version, he'd be fucked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Yes, I mean, that. I suppose that's meant to be the kind of the last sort of, you know, the last knockings of life as they kind of disappear and he sort of fades inevitably. It didn't leave him with anywhere to go, really. I mean, you didn't really hear much of Terry Jacks after this, and it's difficult to do a follow-up to a season of something. Yeah. He fucking died, didn't he? That's why. Yeah, exactly. It's difficult to kind of, now, let's, uh, let's, let's lighten the mood a bit with the next single. It's, you know, he just didn't, yeah, he, he painted himself into a corner with that one. So, Seasons in the Sun would have one more week at number one before it was knocked off the top spot by Waterloo. And it was, at the time, the biggest selling single ever by a Canadian. And it's still now third behind My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion. And everything I do, I do it for you by Brian Adams. <laughs> Fucking hell. Imagine them three in a row. <laughs> He'd have another go at a Jack Brown song, If You Go Away, in the summer of 1974, which got to number eight. But he eased out of the music scene in the late 70s and became an environmentalist and documentary maker. For the second week running, that's Terry Jacks, a uh, Jacques Brel, Rod McEwen creation, and he's doing remarkably well with Seasons in the Sun. We can't leave you on such a sad note, can we? Slightly frivolous sound of the Glitter Band and Angel Face terminating this edition of Top of the Pops. We hope you'll join us at the same time next week. You will. Great. signs off describes the following band as slightly frivolous oh look who's talking you cunt and does possibly the first mic drop on British television
But I bet you know there was some BBC bloke underneath waiting to catch it, don't you? (laughs) He's introducing the Glitter Band. Formed in 1972 by members of the Boston International Show Band, the Glitter Men were created as a backing band for Gary Glitter and they made their debut on Top of the Pops in June of 1972. Before long, they were inundated with fan mail sent to Gary Glitter's fan club, much to his annoyance. So by late 1973, they were spun off into their own band. This is their debut release and it's been at number five for two weeks. I think it's quite nice for them that... um Having been freed from the shackles of playing on Gary Glitter Records, they've gone off in a completely different musical direction and done something that sounds nothing like anything they've done yes. before. But uh, yeah, the Glitter Band themselves, I mean, what is their fate nowadays? I mean, because I don't suppose, you know, Angel Face isn't really a... with its typically suspect 70s lyric in its own right, of it, course. Well, it says, you're a child of Sweet Sixteen. That's mm. the first line. Yeah. Uh, and then later on mm. it goes, uh, uh, who knows how long your looks will last. It's It's a bit, yeah... It's, mm. it's got a slight... Got to get you ready fast. Yeah, it's... Oh. Who knows how long your looks will last. It's a little bit U-tree, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Definitely. I've actually seen the Glitter Band, or I, I've mentioned this before, I think, that I've, I've seen a version of, of the Glitter Band um, at the Scala in London. Uh, and this was after we know what we know about Gary Glitter. And it was the most euphoric celebratory gig, or one of the most euphoric celebratory gigs I've ever been to, because uh, everybody in the audience felt liberated and felt able, felt permitted to chant along to what were, let's face it, brilliant records that Mm. Gary Glitter made, but without the leader himself being Mm. present to lap up the adulation. And uh, the people who were uh, receiving the applause were, for all we know, you know, innocent men. Uh, there's there's a um, there's a lyric by Luke Haynes, isn't there? Gary Glitter is a bad bad man, sullying the reputation of the Glitter Band. <laughs> so they were doing Gary Glitter songs. They were, yeah, oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. God. They did, they did, they did their own hits. Let's get together again and Angel Face and all of that. But they went for it. They played the entire back catalogue. Yeah. Was their name up in lights? I mean, you know, I just wondered if they could sort of because that would be a bit more discreet affair. Now I don't know. It's uh, <laughs> written or... on a post-it note on the drum kit. <laughs> I think I think they were supporting Adamant with uh, with whom they they shared the gimmick of two drummers, of course. But the bloke who was who was stepping into Gary Glitter's boots, if you will. I mean, how was he? How was he carrying on? Well, he was just one of. Was he doing the, Was he doing the punching and the gestures and the and the, and the stereo? No, he wasn't. He was just you know um, the guitarist, singer, guitarist with the band. He was off to one side. He wasn't being a front man as such. Oh, they were very right. much the glitter band. They they weren't sort of that. There was no stunt, Gary. Put it that way. No, no, there wouldn't be, would they? <laughs> did, did they allude to their former leader's troubles? No, they didn't. They just. I mean, they didn't need to. Uh, I think every yeah, everybody no, in the audience, we we all, yeah. we all knew what we were thinking. We we yeah. all knew, uh, well, you know, we feel a bit sorry for these guys because their whole career is fucked now because of what's happened. Mm. Obviously, there are people whose lives have been ruined in a far worse way by what Gary Glitter mm. did. Nevertheless, you know, these guys as professional yeah. musicians are a bit fucked. Um, and as mm. far as anyone knows, they haven't done anything wrong. So, yeah, it was mm. it was a wonderful kind of celebratory atmosphere. But as you say putting their name up in lights would be a risky business you know for them to actually announce a nationwide tour uh in the current in the yeah. current climate uh yeah Fuck. it would be a bit scared for their safety i mean they're still operating apparently well there's, there's two of them there's actually two versions of them knocking around two versions of the glitter band yeah but the song 
Simon, this is this seems to be a prime example of what you termed in an earlier episode as dog shit glam. Yeah, it's all right. I mean, I made my sarcastic comment a few minutes ago about their radical departure. I mean, why fuck with the formula in 1974? It's though? all right. It's I if if I was going to do a sort of top ten of. Gary Glitter plus the Glitter Band. It might just sneak into the lower reaches, put it that way. And this is a chance at the end of the show where we get to see the audience. We do through a fisheye lens, which goes back to what I was saying about the uh, the visual grammar of early 70s Top of the Pops. You've got that kind of psychedelic overload of the Mungo Jerry performance. You've got the radial spangle of the mud mm. uh, spotlights. And then you've got this, the fisheye lens. So those three together, that is early 70s Top of the Pops to me. And I love it. It's, it doesn't really matter what song's playing. That... There's something more evocative or as evocative about that site as, as you know, any any song. The following week, Angel Face nudged up to number four, its highest position. The follow-up, Just For You, made it to number 10 in August when they released their debut LP, Hey! <laughs> Best glam rock album name ever. They go on to have five more hits, including a number two with Goodbye My Love in February of 1975, and they'd split up in 1977. And that, my friends, closes the book on this episode of Top of the Pops. What's on television afterwards? Well, BBC One follows up with Are You Being Served? Something called the Burke Special. I think it was a James Burke discussion programme. And a play called Three for the Fancy, the follow-up to The Fishing Party with Brian Glover. David Bellamy teaches you how to read the countryside in Bellamy's Britain. And they finish off with a film of Newcastle seen through the eyes of a Finn. That, that doesn't sound like such a bad night's telly, actually. No, no, it's not bad at all, is it? I was thinking I wouldn't mind that BBC Two thing about humanism either that you mentioned earlier, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. God knows the world could do with a bit of that right now, eh, kids? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> BBC Two has Collector's World, where Hugh Scully looks at some collectible tiles, followed by the Vera Lynn show and a documentary about British people pissing off to Australia. ITV is running an episode of Special Branch about a dead spy in Canada and his link with an au pair in London. An episode of This Week, an interview with Ray Harryhausen in cinema and finishes off with What the Papers Say and Angling Today with Terry Thomas. No, not that one. Someone from <laughs> ATV Midlands. So, chaps, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? Um, whew, I mean... I, I, I guess ABBA, um, although it probably wasn't at the time, I was probably talking about mud myself. Um, perhaps, you know, obviously reenacting the kind of mud rockers with a couple of, like, you know, trusted friends. Yes. Not with earrings, though. No, 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 no. Simon? To honestly answer the question, I think we'd be talking about Evil Knievel or the upcoming FA Cup final between Liverpool and Newcastle United, because... I don't think this was an outstanding episode of Top of the Pops. Um, I, I think um, if you know, if no. you had to discuss anything from this show, yeah, I think Mud brought the excitement more than anyone else on this episode. If you're a kid, you know, in fact, even if you're an adult, I think just Mud totally bring it. Yeah, surely people would be talking about the Wombles though. I don't know. Um, they can play instruments now, for fuck's sake. The weird thing with the Wombles is that even though I was six years old, I think I still thought they were a bit young for me. I, th- I think um, whatever age I was, and you know, at, at any time, I thought the Wombles were aimed at kids maybe one or two years younger. But, mm. but like you say, there there are people who appear to be about fourteen or something leaping around to that song. So, yeah. what do I know? And what are we buying on Saturday? 
I would probably, yeah, I think I was a big Tiger Feet fan. I think I'd probably be, uh, yeah, shelling out, um, whatever it was, 40 pence, 50 pence, whatever. Um, what do you say I wouldn't? I'd have spent it on crisps, actually. I think what I've done, I'd have, <laughs> I'd have, taped, I'd have taped it off the radio. I'd have, well, what I would have taped off the radio, I'd have probably taped mud, I'd have taped um, Waterloo and... And yeah, and actually Slade, because I was a huge Slade fan, and even though I was disappointed in their change of pace, I think I would have still kept the faith. Simon? I would have bought the Mud single, uh, but if I had a few pence left, then, like David, I would have bought some crisps. The difference is, I would have sacrificed them. <laughs> I did not sacrifice a single crisp to anybody in the 1970s, I can tell you. And what does this episode tell us about 1974? I think it feels like a time when nothing is ever going to change. Because, you know, um, in the 1975 episode, there was this feeling of, of slight entropy, that everything's about to collapse, and that change it, change has to come, change will come. Um, and mm. maybe, you know, I, I wasn't taking part in the 1973 one, but there was a feeling of excitement that this is the new thing, this is the new world. I think there's this weird feeling of stasis in 74. Um, I've got a really strong memory of going to my, my granddad's uh, shop. He ran a printer's shop, and... Uh, and getting a, uh, a scrapbook. And on the front of the scrapbook, it had a picture of a sort of generic racing car from the Grand Prix, um, a, <laughs> uh, a, a generic footballer with kind of flowing Roy Race hair, yeah. and a generic pop star. And the generic pop star looked like a sort of member of, you know, a minor member of the Glitter Band or a minor member of, of Mud or something like that, a minor member of Mungo Jerry. And it just seemed that this is, this is what pop culture na- was now. It was set in stone or certainly set in ink forever. Mm. And, um, Noel Edmonds seemed to embody that as well. He seemed to, to be this kind of godhead at, at the top of it all. And that the, the idea that, that anything could be thrown into turmoil, um, or, or, or that any of this kind of Reich of, uh, of, of fairly lightweight, um, meaningless pop would, would, would ever crumble was yeah, inconceivable. I say that I was six. I, I was six years old. I didn't have those kind of thoughts. But look at looking at it now. That's how it feels to me. There was a sort of sense of stasis at the time. I think that the kind of that there'd been a sort of forward momentum for a long time. You know, in the sort of pop music world. And I think it was just at last kind of drawing to a close. And I think that not an awful lot really seemed to be happening of great interest. You know, on, on the surface of things, you know, or in the kind of superstar end of things. You know, in even the sort of you know people, even the sort of. The, the Who and people like that were kind of running out of steam and they're all getting kind of pissed and bloated in LA or whatever, which is why David Bowie was supposed, you know, eventually sort of inclined to kind of relocate, you know, and do his Berlin thing. And uh, none of that was impinging. I mean, there's a real sense of underground that, that the world of pop is entirely separate, as it were. Um, it feels very separate from the kind of world of inverted kind of serious music. Mm. And I think that the only sort of hints that you're getting of things are, like, think that maybe the whole sort of interest in rock and roll that you're getting around this time is maybe sort of the, the beginnings of an appetite to get back to sort of basics of some sort. And you've got the pub rock thing, you've got hints of that in things like the Mungo Jerry or whatever. And and that um, and, and, and the Ted thing of, like, so you know, the whole Ted thing, the whole sort of rock and roll revival thing, and there is, I think, a connection between that and punk when it eventually happens, which is only about a year or so later, the first sort of knockings of that. Um, so, yeah, just you just sort of perhaps sort of hearing sort of distant inklings of that, really. So that is the end of this episode of Chart Music. Let me do the usual ramble about where you can get hold of us. Uh, our website is www.chart-music.co.uk. Our Facebook group is facebook.com chart music podcast. 
and you can follow us on Twitter, Chart Music T-O-T-P. Thank you very much, David Stubbs. Thank you. Thank you very much, Simon Price. You're welcome, anytime. I'm Al Needham, and I am threatening to streak across the studio. <laughs> <laughs> Chart music. Hello there, welcome to the Cookability Roadshow. So, what are you ladies finding out about gas, Sonia? Oh, we wouldn't use anything else, it's so cheap. Dawn? Well, it's very easy to control. And then? You know, these special oven linings help keep the oven clean. And all these gadgets are marvellous. Right. And it all adds up to one thing. Cookability, that's the beauty of gas. I've never eaten so well in my life.